When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While Aegon and his sisters were busy conquering the Stormlands, the Riverlands, the Vale, and what would become the Crownlands, the Iron Islands was in chaos after the fall of Heron the Black, so we'll speak of them later, and the Dornish continued to bide their time, so we'll speak of them later too. The Resteros includes three major kingdoms, the North, the West, and the Reach. Torrin Stark, King of the North, gathered his strength, preparing to march south. It took him longer, so we'll speak of him later. At the same time, the West and the Reach decided to ally and fight the dragons together and gathered their army quickly, so we'll speak of them now. For once, two of the kingdoms were united, and this resulted in the largest army ever fielded in Westeros. Aegon, far from fearing this conflict, seems to have almost welcomed it. I mean, he would have preferred they knelt, but this gave him the opportunity to teach a lesson. If Harrenhal was his chance to prove that no castle is safe by destroying the largest one ever built, why not teach the same lesson when it comes to the largest army ever fielded? If the West and Reach were going to gather all that many men in one place, he would gladly come and make an example of them. Teach them why you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Aegon knew that the biggest army ever seen in Westeros wouldn't fare much better than the biggest castle had. And he was right. It was a spectacular and unique battle. But it wasn't a close battle. But it definitely wasn't simple either. There were many considerations, issues of timing and uncertainty. Aegon had such a huge advantage compounded by the fact that his enemies were ignorant of how big (laughs) his advantage was. So he was able to think ahead about the aftermath during the battle. He was able to coordinate the outcome a little bit in ways that you can't normally plan war (laughs) it's war like ah well what happens happens like there's only so much you can plan right it's a little easier to plan when you know you're gonna win yes right (laughs) yeah when you know (laughs) i guess it's a little easier to plan when you know you're gonna lose also yeah i guess so yeah Uh, your choices are smaller anyway (laughs) he could decide who lived and who died on the field of battle instead of having to make uncomfortable decisions later right he could curtail the outcome in a way that you normally can't Put a different way, killing on nobles on the battlefield is kingly, while executing them afterwards, is uh, that kind of comes off wrong. It looks tyrannical, even if bo- either way you're killing someone who has no chance. That's not really how it's perceived in Westeros. We can argue the, the similarities to that scenario, but there's no doubt in my mind that it comes off way differently to the other nobles and the, the peasants, if we're, if we're getting into it. So this factor determined much of his strategy determined uh, this factor determined much of his strategy during and after. And arguably, the short period of time after the battle was more compelling than the battle itself. I'll tell you right now that there's a lot unsaid here, which means a lot of our filling in the blanks and reading between the lines is going to happen. So you get to decide yourself which is more interesting. Judge for uh, judge that on your own. We'll give you all the info we can. And either way, it's going to come up quite a few times in A Song of Ice and Fire and Duncan Egg, meaning the Field of Fire, as a historical anecdote or as a lesson or as a piece of history, something that fits in the world building pretty often. So we'll be bringing all that into the rereaders discussion today as well. Yes, all that and more on this episode of History at Westeros Podcast. 
Hello and welcome everybody. Every Sunday, almost every Sunday that is, we get together for a live stream at 3 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. Afterwards, you can still see that video on YouTube, but you can catch an edited version up on Spotify or the audio-only version available everywhere uh, that you catch podcasts. And it's ad-free if you join us on Patreon. Sean, how's it going today? You got a, a special drink for us today or for you? You're not sharing it, I assume. <laughs> I wish I could. This is a fiery red drink for the field of fire. That is very red. Maybe for the blood of the dragons as well. Uh, what do I, it's, this is the rainbow machine with Mountain Dew with sparkling ice, nice. uh, black raspberry. And it's delicious as always. As always, I doubt it. <laughs> as as always. <laughs> I also got this new Mastodon shirt. Nice. I like that Mastodon. Which shirt. Uh, it? I think I'll wear this the next time we do any kind of high tower centered thing. It's like a torch of green light. Oh yeah, that is like you know? a high tower thing. You're right. Yeah. I, maybe. I own several Mastodon shirts, and I'm a big fan of Mastodon, but I don't think I've seen that shirt before. That's cool. I hadn't either. I snatched it right nice. up. Yeah. I've got my Mazaria shirt on. Nice yeah. and purple for, for Targaryen eyes and yeah. the, the silver lighting. <laughs> By uh, Fox and Brambles, That's who right. did our logo. Shout out to Ashton. So, uh, a shout out as well to our good friend Nina. That's Good Queen Alley with 17 L's and, I mean, one L in Good Queen Alley. Uh, <laughs> Tum.tumblr.com. Very interesting question she was asked and a very excellent answer she gives to what about Davos being offered the chance to make a shadow baby with Melisandre? What's her deal there? Is she trying to bring him under her power, seduce him, gain his loyalty? It's a really interesting question. And would and has she offered that to other people? Like, wouldn't there be other people lining up to make shadow babies for their king, uh, given the offer, the context of the offer. Uh, so it's a it's a very good question. And Nina gives a really good answer. You're going to want to go over there and read about that. One point she brings up is, well, it becomes an interesting moral conundrum because Davos is the center of Davos's moral uh, morality is loyalty to Stannis. And Melisandre frames it as a deed done for his king. So it's kind of like, well, he did it. Stannis did this. Shouldn't you do it too? Shouldn't you be willing to do the same thing your king is given? It's a really, yeah, it's a t it's a really good it's a really good question and answer. Uh, I highly encourage you to read that and and think about it yourself too because it is a it is a tough question. I I think it's another option is that she might have been testing him. Yes, it might absolutely. not even have worked, but she might have just wanted to know how he would take it. She's sizing him up, you know. Absolutely, and Nina brings that up too. So you're you're right to to point to that, and, and Nina caught that as well. All right, and I we talked about this a little ahead of time. I want to point out that I would have been like, "Heck yeah!" For no reason. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's in jail. That's, yeah. jail. That's the part I bring up. <laughs> take part in a magical spell. Like, what's the, it just keeps do it for my king. What's the downside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take out our enemy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the big fail on Davos's part. I'm gonna say. <laughs> so ask questions if you are if you have them. Whether you're watching live, you can send them right here for Ashea to catch, and we'll put them in the stream, or you can send. Send them to us anywhere that you interact with us. Uh, WesterosHistory at gmail.com is one of those places. If you want to find links to everything I ever talk about, whether it's links to our other products, link to Nina, link to our other pages, anything like that, go to HistoryOfWesteros.com. That's where all that's it's stored in one place. As well as Ashea's excellent episode sorter. You can find a, a version of that there. Lots of things on our website that you will find useful. And at the end of this episode, of course, I'll mention some, mention some that are relevant to this one. And I'll give the answer to this trivia question. 
But one thing I'm going to do a little different with these trivia questions going forward is the answer to this question comes during the episode. Like I'm the answer appears during the episode. So if you're paying close attention, you might catch it. Either way, I'll tell you at the end. Uh, and the question is, there were four commanders on the field of fire on the side of the two kings. So the Reach West side had four commanders, the right, the left, the center, and the vanguard. One was King Mern, one was his son Edmund, one was King Lauren, and who was the other? So one that was not a king or the son of a king, because it wasn't King Lauren's son. The answer comes during the episode, like I said. All right, setup And first mention, I kind of wanted to call this one the uh, field of fire and friendship for everyone. Because that's, oh. uh, that's, because that is basically what happened, right? Everyone either got burned or peace, got peace. They got friendship for everyone, right? It may have been a forced <laughs> friendship, but it was enforced pretty heavily because, you know, if you didn't stay friends, you, you got the burn, right? Like those are your options and they remained your options even afterwards. So yeah, the field of fire comes up quite a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire. It is well remembered as Aegon surely expected it to be, and as we'll see, it was probably, at least in part, by design, an example to stand the test of time in the vein of Harrenhal. The singers call it the Field of Fire, right? I wonder if it was like a Bloodraven thing where we, we theorize, or a Tywin thing where we theorize that Tywin, like, encouraged the singing of the Reigns of Castamere, or Bloodraven encouraged the singing of A Thousand Eyes in One. Like, Aragorn's like, yeah, sing about the Field of Fire, Absolutely. Keep that one going. Make sure it's a good song that people keep singing. <laughs> and it's it's it kind of rolls off the tongue, Field of Fire. The Burning of Harrenhal doesn't have like a name. It doesn't have a nickname. It's just the Burning of Harrenhal, right? It, it's no fancy, clever nickname for it. This is kind of like, it is a little poetic, the Field of Fire. It would have been so much better if it was Baron Hall or something. <laughs> Baron Hall, that's really good. <laughs> I like that, yeah. That's what it should have been renamed to afterwards. <laughs> it was it was built Heron Hall, but it became Baron Hall pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. So that is needed, too, because Heron Hall, there's the long-lasting visual evidence. You've got that sitting there still now to this day as a testament to the power of, of the dragon. Well, at least of one dragon in particular, but it, it works for the others in, in, a le in a lesser sense. So this is mem remembered more by song and memory and clever naming and things like that and history books. So there wouldn't be... Uh, a lot of there'd be more of that, right? More of maybe we'll hear a song of it one day. Here's an example, which also happens to be the first ever mention of the Field of Fire from Tyrion II, A Game of Thrones. Tyrion stood in that dank cellar for a long time, staring at Balerion's huge, empty eyed skull until his torch burned low, trying to grasp the size of the living animal, to imagine how it must have looked when it spread its great black wings and swept across the skies, breathing fire. His own remote ancestor, King Lauren of the Rock, had tried to stand against the fire when he joined with King Myrn of the Reach to oppose the Targaryen conquest. That was close on 300 years ago, when the Seven Kingdoms were kingdoms and not mere provinces of a greater realm. Between them, the two kings had 600 banners flying, 5,000 mounted knights, and ten times as many free riders and men at arms. Aegon Dragonlord had perhaps a fifth that number, the chroniclers said, and most of those were conscripts from the ranks of the last king he had slain, their loyalties uncertain. The hosts met on the broad plains of the Reach, amidst golden fields of wheat ripe for harvest. When the two kings charged, the Targaryen army shivered and shattered and began to run. 
For a few moments, the chroniclers wrote, the conquest was at an end, but only for those few moments before Aegon Targaryen and his sisters joined the battle. It was the only time that Vagar, Meraxes, and Balerion were all unleashed at once. The singers called it the Field of Fire. Near 4,000 men had burned that day, among them King Myrn of the Reach, King Lorin had escaped, and lived long enough to surrender, pledge his fealty to the Targaryens, and beget a son, for which Tyrion was duly grateful. <laughs> nice, long, excellent, fun quote there. Just goes to show how much of that detail George included really early in the story. That's the 14th chapter of the series. And along with Tyrion, we will be imagining what it must have been like. And it's pretty intense. I mean, think about that. He's just trying to grasp the size of this creature as he's standing looking at its skull and how large its flames must have been and, and all that. There's been a few examples of dragons on TV. We have an easier time imagining it than Tyrion does, I think, because mm -hmm. we've gotten to see dragons on TV that were rendered with really excellent CGI and against armies. That Loot Train episode of season seven of Game of Thrones is a probably our best uh, visual similarity. It was an army of Westermen and Reachmen even, right? Like there were you know, Dothraki at the Field of Fire, so that's pretty different. And there was really only one dragon there that did, that did anything significant. So there's still substantial differences in that battle and this one. But still, it's the visuals there. A lot of those would apply here. So the Field of Fire belongs in the pantheon of early world building. George likely had this stuff written well before he even expanded the series beyond a trilogy which is why we should be more sure that it matters as a historical analogy slash parallel slash lesson or some kind of foreshadowing or all of the above because George included it so early and he kept so many of the original details exactly the same. Very f detailed numbers. He doesn't usually do that with these historical anecdotes, right? Usually it's more vague, like the armies were large or the... the Host was the largest ever seen. No, he gives us the exact numbers, and those exact numbers are the exact same in Fire and Blood. 600 banners, which is 600 lords, or 600 landed people, like some of them could be knights with castles, same difference. They're both, it's called the Two Kings in capital, right? 5,000 knights with 55,000 total, and 11,000 for Aegon. All those details were the exact same. The only things that I can see that changed were the spelling of Vagar, because Vagar used to have an extra H in it. And the calling Aegon Aegon Dragonlord, which didn't really stick as a as a nickname, even though it was pretty early in the book, comes up once or twice. Then never again. <laughs> then it's just Aegon the Conqueror, Aegon Targaryen, Aegon the First, whatever. They just didn't call him that anymore. George just kind of pivoted away from that nickname. For well, that was reason. kind of my question: is the other times that he was mentioned, like I got the idea that Tyrion said it like that because he was emphasizing that mm. aspect of Aegon, like it almost seemed dimin like diminutive of, of him, like he was saying, like diminishing what he did, like Aegon Dragonlord. Interesting, you know. It was, but mm. like, I, I don't think that is how it's said in the other times. It's it's mentioned like that. I don't recall exactly the context of the other times he calls it's called Dragonlord. Maybe. It's a question for another time, I think. But yeah, it's only a few times. That's a really interesting interpretation of Shay. I like that. And Tyrion is, of all it the is. characters, is someone who's thought about dragons and dragon lords the most. So, and this is our introduction to that. This is literally the chapter where we first find out that he's obsessed with dragons. This is this is where it comes. This is our introduction to Tyrion's dragonosity. It would be an interesting, but although maybe difficult thing to analyze the, the different people and when when they refer to Aegon, what they called him, you know, yeah. the context of the conversation or the perspective of the person was because it is it is a, 
I didn't think about it until Shay said that, but it does make me think that it kind of, eh, he's a dragon lord. Of course he won this big battle. He had a freaking dragon. Like, <laughs> I guess he's a conqueror, but really he's a dragon lord. It does take away a little bit. You know, he didn't call him Aegon the Wise. Yeah, but if, if I'm picturing Tyrion narrating that line, there's a little snark in there too. <laughs> Yeah. And he's talking to a little Stark at the time, or <laughs> he's talking to John. <laughs> John's a little Stark. Yeah, he's a little Stark. Yeah, <laughs> not whole Stark. But <laughs> uh, I want to point out also um, that the numbers George gave us aren't pre- preposterously inflated. No, like, you're they're right. Big, but they're not out of control like the Wall or a few other things that he's you know, named. Yeah, the, you're, you're right. That might maybe be... with a little regret. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, these armies are not absurdly large. These are these are reasonable sized. In fact, they would be. This is something we'll talk about a little later: is the size of the army and how this reflects the population of the era, and how like a, a similar sized gathering of armies now would probably be larger. Like Renly's army was larger, for example. It just didn't see battle, so it doesn't get. This is the largest army that ever saw a battle, <laughs> right? As that we know of, there have been other ones that were larger that just were an army but never did any fighting. At least not in that form. So, yeah, I like that interpretation as well. If you think back, I mean, they would have been different names he had at the time. Like, when did he start getting called Aegon the Conqueror? Like, right away? Maybe. But there, he would have maybe had other nicknames that some of which maybe predated the conquest. And then some of those would have faded. And, yeah, different eras might have called him different things, just despite the, the main name. I suppose, yeah, if you're talking about... Joe Biden in the 80s, you might refer to him as Senator Biden because he wasn't president yet. That's know? true. Yeah, sure. He might have had different nick. Like no one called him like people call him Sleepy Joe now. I don't think anyone called him Sleepy Joe in the 90s, you know. Pete Holmes bit about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever there's some mean bully person that's scaring you, just remember in a few hours, he's going to be, oh, I'm the cold side of the pillow. <laughs> Everyone sleeps. It takes some fear away from the bullies. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Even dragons, right? Like Balerians just like, Bleh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> a sleeping dragon is still pretty scary <laughs> yeah that's true that's true just like the snore would knock you off your feet it just like, might accidentally uh... yeah do they snort little bits of flame just like little tiny bits yeah. pop out right like just by accident <laughs> here's another fun aspect to that quote it sounds like Tyrion is down in the cellar looking at the skulls but if you remember your your books that never happens he's never down in the cellars looking at the skulls this is a memory he's thinking about this time that he was down there he's actually on his way to the wall what what's, brings up this memory is he's reading about the properties of Dragonbone. He sits down at a tree to read his academic treatise on Dragonbone, starts thinking about dragon skulls, and he's taken back to the cellar where he's thinking about that. And that leads him to thinking of the Field of Fire. Which is cool because, as I said, this is the introduction to Tyrion being so into dragons. It's basically our first real introduction to any sort of dragon lore. And it's the Field of Fire. That's what we get. The first thing we get is Balerian Skull, then a description of the Field of Fire. That's our introduction to dragons in Westeros. The first, like, Danny's had her first chapter, but she's not really thinking about dragons that much. She's, like, getting out of the bath and anxious about her wedding and, dro- and Viserys is being all crappy to her like he always is. Like, there's not much talk of actual dragons there. So this is where it starts. It's also a good writing device because it makes the world feel more real. Yeah. When characters in the world think about other things, historical events in the world, it makes it seem like the world itself is more real. It's a, I agree. It's good on so many levels. Yeah. And, and George has this great way of 
like you might think, like a lot of authors would have put this history in Danny's chapters because they are there. It's his, her ancestors. But Tyrion's the one obsessed with dragons. He's the one that's really into it. So he's the one gives us history for that. That's something George does a lot of where backstory comes in a chapter that applies to a different plot line. We pointed a lot of that out during the standard Valar Reredus for A Song of Ice and Fire. And I pointed this out one time, too, when we were trying to, like, categorize, if you will, Martin's writings. It's fantasy, uh, intrigue, uh, horror, but I think mystery as much as any of those. Ooh, yeah, and that's yeah, one way to present it as a mystery is to kind of scatter the information, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, the one of the mysteries... It comes up here, the next line, as Tyrion's thinking, it's one of the first examples of the interruption trick that George uses. Of He's in the middle of lore, and rather than finding a spot to end the lore lesson, it gets interrupted by the characters, something that's actually happening that's more uh, pressing or present. Like, in this case, John says one of the most famous lines in the early books, or if not all the books, why do you read so much? Which is by itself like, oh, we love that question because Tyrion gives a fantastic answer. <laughs> it's a beloved answer. And it's the irony in this moment is gigantic because he's reading about Targaryen history, which probably doesn't apply to Tyrion, but there's a chance it does because he might be one. But John is, right? Like that we can be 99.9% .9 sure of. And so the guy who's lore this applies to, it's, it applies to Danny, who's, chapter, who's had one or two chapters by this point, but it also applies to John. Who's the one interrupting? So that's really neat. And uh, yeah, and Nina points out that the 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 point about Tyrion being duly grateful for the burning there, the outcome of the battle, right? Also, John should be duly grateful because Aegon lived long enough <laughs> to sire a son and become John's remote ancestor as well. So those both John and Tyrion would be grateful if they knew the full story there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. The actual camp, let's bring it back to the timeline of right before the Field of Fire rather than during John and Tyrion's walk to the wall. The campaign begins, and here we have another quote of just that. The two great Western kings had made common cause and assembled their own armies, intent on putting an end to Aegon for good and all. From Highgarden marched Mern the Ninth of House Gardener, King of the Reach, with a mighty host. Beneath the walls of Castle Goldengrove, seat of House Rowan, he met Lorin I, Lannister, King of the Rock, leading his own host down from the Westerlands. Together, the two kings commanded the mightiest host ever seen in Westeros, an army 55,000 strong, including some 600 lords, great and small, and more than 5,000 mounted knights. Our iron fist boasted King Mern. His four sons rode beside him, and both of his young grandsons attended him as squires. For once, like I said, or we've said a few times, this is an example of kings uniting against a common foe. We don't see it a whole lot. That, for Aegon, created an opportunity to show that, yes, you bring together all these people, and I will beat it easily, and that will send a message. Ashea is going to put up the map of Golden Grove so we can see roughly the location of this. Now, we don't know exactly where the battle took place. It's somewhere in the general area, golden near Castle Golden Grove. And perhaps it's a little bit like the Redgrass Field, where it's just a field. It doesn't have a lot of things to mark it. 
as special. I'm sure in the short term, there were things to market like carnage and bones and pieces of metal. But 300 years later, you can see why maybe the exact location has been lost like it has been for some other things. Now, to be fair, the red grass field, Blood Raven may have manipulated things a little bit to keep people from knowing where it was because he saw that people would go there and like leave homages to, to Damon Blackfire. And he didn't like that. So <laughs> he didn't want people like remembering fondly what was and and, and paying their respects like that. So now I'm not sure that was necessarily a problem here. Uh, I don't know that Aegon was worried about them paying homage to the dead gardeners, uh, but it's possible. It is possible. And that might be why the, the site has been somewhat lost. I, I lean towards it just, you know, it was a big field. Like there's nothing terribly <laughs> notable about it other than what took place there. But in the long run, there's no physical reminders. So yeah, uh, comparing this to other large armies, for scale, etc. The the army size was beaten by Renly. Uh, Renly's didn't actually see battle, as I said. Now, all the regions can field larger armies than they used to because of the conquest, because of the longer-term peace, because of lasting peace instead of very frequent war, which was the norm prior to the conquest. So the overall population increased. People, farms were larger. Farms were more fertile. People, farms weren't destroyed as often. More trade happened, less disruption of resources like that, less setbacks, less times where half the male population was slain and a bunch of the women mm -hmm. too in because of a war. Like just, yeah, they're, these things all, like more these things really stack up. In investments, long-term yeah. plans are more worth making. Or it's more safe to decide to build a farm in this area, to lend money, to buy, you know, uh, horses and plows and such that they need for farm because you don't expect the farm to get attacked by invaders two years later, right? You'll, your investment will pay off. The farmer is willing to commit his life to it, to settle down where he is and et cetera, et cetera. All the, which again, more farms means more food, which means because as populations grow, you need more food too. It's, it's true. sort of yeah. a lot of connecting factors that war disrupts all of, you know, every single part of it. Yeah. War it's, it's, it's the more you study the war, the more disruptive you realize it is to just everything and, and everyone even when it's contained to a smaller area, like the, the spillover factor. Yeah, I mean, just, just just think about it from a from a vibes perspective, just from like your anxiety. It's like sitting around going, when's the next war coming? You know, you just know it's going to happen in the back of your mind. You just like any day now, like my whole land could get taken away and just everyone killed, you know, like in the back of my mind. But under Aegon, you might have a little optimism, like, well, actually, maybe it's been 10 years and we haven't had anything go wrong. Maybe, maybe it's too much to hope for that to continue, but maybe, maybe it will. And yeah, so like you say, that's the kind of financial investment. You're talking about an emotional investment in your own future and, and being able to feel like you might have a future, <laughs> whereas uh, you might not have felt that way under the, the, the prior scenarios. Rhaegar had about 40,000 at the Trident for comparison. The rebels had less, so not a whole lot less than 55,000, but, but still definitely less. And that was towards the end of the war. There had already been a lot of battles and, and this like that. Whereas this was the first battle, not for Aegon, obviously, but the first battle that the West or Reach had fought, and the only. <laughs> so these things were all wrapped up much quicker. Aegon himself would have <laughs> one of the next most largest armies fielded right after this battle. Basically, all the people that conscripted into his army after he beat them, plus his existing army, added up to about 45,000, which he would take north to confront Torin, which we'll be getting to uh, pretty shortly in our read-through here. King Mern called it an iron fist, our iron fist, but like, how useful is a fist against a dragon? Not. It's not. It's use, it's useless. Like, try punching a dragon, even with a f iron fist. 
not going to help. It's just going to be annoyed. <laughs> like, what? if you can even reach it, if you can, yeah. Land the punch, can you even right? get close yeah. enough? Exactly. Like, this is a very bad metaphor, Mister Mister Mern. <laughs> Fists don't have much range. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to hit a dragon with an arrow, like with a fist. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> now, Argalac... You haven't seen his arms. <laughs> it's a go- he's like Inspector Gadget. Yeah, like... Rrr. It still doesn't do much damage, though. <laughs> he's like, hey, stop that. You can tickle him. Like, eh. yeah. Can you tickle a dragon? Hmm. Argalac had actually come fairly close to winning, or at least it kind of looked like he was... Maybe he wasn't really that close to winning, but he defeated much of the army sent against him before finally losing when... His men came in contact with Meraxes and, and Oris directly. So this might have been learned. The two kings might have heard about this, and that might have given them a boost of confidence. Like, hey, these guys almost won, and we have way more men than them. And we're better. Of course, because they they're going to think that anyway, because they're proud. They're Gardeners and Lannisters, and they've ruled these domains for 8,000 years. They've got the level of pride they must have is just, we can't fathom. <laughs> and that's important because... To us, it's easy to look at what they did and think, God, that was dumb. <laughs> so we have to kind of wrap our heads around why to them it didn't seem so dumb. Like, what made them think this would work? What made them think uh, this would be successful? What made them think it was a good idea? Or why did they do it blindly anyway? Uh, all these things. A lot of questions here. They could think, and this is the start of that. Well, Argolak was an old man. We have more men. We have more knights. The way they think about war and the way, way Mern was so proud, he's like, yeah, we got this iron fist. He's like, the way they think about war, nothing ever, like this has ever happened before from their side. Not let alone nothing's ever happened like this with dragons. But they're thinking about their own army and like, we've got the biggest army Westeros has ever seen. More knights than anyone's ever put together. Like, how could we lose? The way they think about war numbers are a really important thing especially when you're in the reach when numbers are often your path to victory because you have that advantage kind of built in because that's the the population of the reach is the largest so it's the advantage they lean on they're used to that being and it usually works it's usually gonna i mean yes smaller armies can beat larger ones that happens all the time but i don't think that's what's in their mind here they're not like well maybe he could beat it that's just not how they're also, like small armies beating larger ones, it's like the seventeen thousand soldier army beat the twenty two. <laughs> yeah, right. Army. Yeah, not the five thousand soldier army did not beat the fifty thousand soldier yeah. army. That doesn't happen, yeah. right? And and that's what this uh, is five factor. to one, basically. You, you said fifty to yeah, ten. Yeah. This is fifty five to eleven. It's pretty much the same math. Yeah. Hmm. And another um, another factor that normally would be to their advantage is this open field. Right. Normally that's something that all the cavalry that they've amassed, all the horses, another thing that when you have more wealth, you have more horses and knights, right? That is an advantage. It's hard to take advantage of in the the woods. That's true. On a coastal area or a cliffside or in the rain. But here we have this open field and a clear day. They don't realize that the, the, the same advantages for their cavalry is an advantage for the it's dragon. It's a bigger a advantage, yes. For the <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, the conditions are perfect, but they're perfecter <laughs> for for the dragons. Yes. Nina points out something else that's a really that I hadn't thought of, which is given the way these other campaigns went, one dragon per region, the West and the Reach might have thought they were only going to have to face one dragon. Um, yeah. So, whoops. And <laughs> and they might one 
even if they had to face two, if they don't realize how big and powerful the dragons are. Yeah. Cause I remember early on when we were discussing this, I thought about the idea of like, you know, I mean, even now we, and, and, and maybe Aegon doesn't fully understand the power of a dragon. Right. Yeah. We, um, I mean, George can sort of make it whatever he wants, I guess, but it, there seem to be certain parameters that we can sort of make sense of. And that the, these characters in this world might've tried to do the same. One reason you have big numbers dragons aside is because when that first clash comes, a bunch of people die. Yes. And then the next wave, and then the next wave. And so if one army can withstand three waves and one can withstand eight waves, yeah, well, the, the bigger army wins, right? right? So if the dragon swoops in breathing fire and kills, you know, 300 soldiers, and then it swings around and breathes again and kills 300 more soldiers and swings around, and like, well, how many times can it swing around and do that? Even if we can never hit it with an arrow, even if it's totally impenetrable, we can't get the dragon right, eventually it gets tired. Right, and it might kill seven, eight thousand troops before it gets tired. We still have thirty thousand more. Yeah, what if they wipe out your whole army? We'll take over. Yeah, like they, the dragons, eventually get tired. The army spreads out. I can still see how they thought they might overcome it. Yeah, you know, I agree. And 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 there's some examples later from the real world that I've got from we get to the actual battle that also show that there's lots of times in the real world where it looked hopeless and terribly and 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 a terrible idea to fight and they did anyway and got slaughtered like there's often it becomes because of an improper framing of a new technological advancement which isn't a new technological advancement it's it's just them not being used to the it's new to them right the dragons aren't new but yeah. it's new to the to the western reach so yeah so they didn't know and, and to be fair as well uh, no dragon had destroyed an army to this point like Meraxes didn't destroy Aris's army or Argalax's army that was more of a the rain was beating down so hard. Meraxes couldn't take flight. The armies kind of just destroyed each other, slogging it out through the mud until it came to hand-to-hand. And Meraxes was, was still really nasty up close without being able to fly. But these combined Western Reach forces had not seen an example of a, of a dragon or multiple dragons destroying a full army yet. They were, they were the example of that. And Aegon was happy to, to set that example because it's like, well, if you're going to try coming at me with an army less than 55,000, like, look how easy this one was. You know, what are you going to, you're going to really try 30? You're going to try 25? Like, do you, what are your chances, man? Like, do you really want to even try? <laughs> so... Yeah, that's that's a hugely important factor, and I think Aegon wanted to let make sure that was known. So we pointed out that making that example was a goal for him, but the optics regarding leadership was much different here. Much different. Heron was the big bully on the block, and new blood on the block. The Hor dynasty hadn't been around for 8,000 years as kings. The, the house probably had been around a long time, maybe even 8,000 years, but they weren't famous Westeros wide for being kings for so long so and we know how the country club of westeros functions in a sense in that the older the blood the more value it seems to have to them so the the whores don't have that sort of ancient nobility going for them in the same sense that the gardeners and lannisters do really no one had that like the gardeners the gardeners were the tip top of all the qualities that makes noble blood great in westeros they had it all. It's the oldest. It's the one that so many other ones descend from. They get to put themselves at the top of that pyramid. And then most everyone agrees with them. You know, they even try to claim that Brandon the Builder came from their line. So they've really got an argument for almost everyone. Like, yeah, everyone came from us. So, yeah. And they're popular. That's another factor. Like, the gardeners 
had kept stability. They were pretty well regarded. They may not have been like popular like the Starks, but they were they're pretty well regarded and that counts for a lot. And same with the Lannisters. So it's not like, yay, you took out Heron. We'll gladly join you for that. Nah, no one in the Reach flipped to join Aegon ahead of time. No one in the West flipped to join Aegon ahead of time. No one said, you know what? I want to be on the winning side. No, they all stayed loyal. As far as we know, we don't have a single example otherwise. And that is different even in the Stormlands. Like Argilac had defections before the campaign even began. Before war was even declared, some of those lords of the, of the Narrow Sea were showing up at Aegon's council meetings and, and shunning Argilax. So that by itself shows an example of the level of loyalty that was in play here and why the political situ situation was much different. You can't just take out these kings and expect everyone to fall in line. Well, you kind of can, <laughs> but you have to do it right. <laughs> Depends on the nature of how you take them. Right, you have to take them all out, which is what he did. Right, you could, if you could leave a, one or two gardeners, then they might try to rally around that one gardener and be like, "Well, this is the family that's led us for eight thousand years. We're going to stick with them." But what happens when there's no gardeners left, or only female gardeners left, as we'll get to? Because there had to be some. They don't get mentioned, so that's that's a problem. But we'll we'll that's some of the reading between the lines we have to do. But we'll get to that in the second half. So. That's why he would have just preferred them to bend the knee because they already have this love and this following. If he, they bend the knee to him, then everyone else follows suit, right? And they're like, okay, well, if the gardeners bend the knee, then so will we. And then it's just, it's nice and smooth and clean and no one dies, no fields get burned. But of course, that's not what happened. The submission uh, would have to take war to uh, determine. Nina writes that, Aegon's decision with the Field of Fire is interesting from a geopolitical perspective because he's setting out with the intent to, if not have them bend the knee, then to annihilate them. They either can bend the knee or die. The two most ancient and well-established dynasties in Westeros. Aegon had every reason to expect that with Myrne and Loren personally leading the armies, which would have really rung bells in his mind like, oh, they're both leading the armies. Well, that gives me a chance to kill them on the Field of battle rather than to execute them or to do something more unsavory later let alone like what Visenya will say about Casterly Rock later like ooh, I'm glad they bent the knee I don't want to have to deal with that castle ooh. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah uh, that might have that might have gotten ugly in other words and that's not what Aegon wanted he didn't want to show that this castle would slow him down you know and wanted to just dominate these weren't violent tyrants who were unpopular these weren't brutes who had enslaved people these were not followers of some dark religion that most of Westeros thought of as like demons. Like, of course, I'm referring to the drowned god. No, these are people who not only worship the seven, like most of Westeros, but are considered pretty high up in regard and in terms of like hierarchy, like the gardeners and the high towers, of course, have uh, kind of a lockdown on this, the faith of the seven in terms of being having a lot of indirect soft power even and a little bit of hard power over the, the faith. Now, of course, as we discussed in our Under the Dragons episode, the High Towers didn't show up to the Field of Fire, and that's a pretty big deal and a big separate discussion. But it wouldn't have helped if they had. I don't like what, ten thousand more men? Well, that wouldn't have made any difference. <laughs> like, right? No. Please. No. The they made the right call. 
And uh, I will yeah. say the way it might have helped if they if they had deployed ten thousand men somewhere else. Okay. If they sent ten thousand sure. men to the, the Crownlands or whatever, you know, that's a good they point. If they rather than just, I don't know if they would have been smart enough to do that if they did show up, but that was the way that could have made a difference. I agree. Yeah, if they had done it, if they had deployed their men differently, this is the worst thing they could have done. Putting them all in one place yeah. where the fire can get them easily is yeah. As we see in the Dance of the Dragons, no one does this. No one forms huge-ass armies and takes them to the field because everyone knows by that era, it's a terrible idea when there's dragons about. The era of large armies returns when the dragons are gone, right? The big armies that, like, go into Dorne to conquer Dorne in the era of King Daron I. That's getting back into the the size armies that existed prior to the dragons. Like, once once the word got out, you don't put 30 40,000 men in the field when they could all just get cooked it's just a terrible idea you go smaller you go 5,000 here 3,000 here 8,000 here maybe even smaller and scatter don't be all in one place because there's only so many dragons and that's even more true now than it was than it is during the dance when there's actually quite a few dragons but uh yeah so if they had used a strategy like that yeah it would have given Aegon fits the strategy that Dorne does use does give them fits and yeah. ends up working pretty darn well. Uh, it's still very destructive, but it was a path to victory and it worked. May have been the only path to victory, but it's not one that was perceived by either the West or the Reach, at least not by people in power, not by people in charge. So yeah, really, really different. So Aegon has to play it delicately. He either has to wipe them out so that there's no rallying behind the survivors or he has to beat them so convincingly that they bend the knee and then the rest fall or... Who knows? It could end up being a really, it could end up being like what Doran becomes, which is Aegon probably perceived that was possible for any of these particular regions, maybe some more than others. Um, maybe the people of the Reach just don't have it in them to behave like the Dornish, but still, Aegon doesn't necessarily know that for sure. He wouldn't want to take any chances necessarily. I can make a quick comment too, just thinking about the idea of how unprepared they were, how they just didn't understand what they needed to do in this scenario it's it's not you know there's and we're different reasons might be a little bit of naivete a little bit of pride a little bit of you know i don't know lack of planning and you got to wonder too if in all the scores of people involved in the leadership there might have been a few guys in there i was like i don't know about this (laughs) you know about those dragons maybe we should spread you know but maybe they weren't senior or influential enough or they were looked at as cowardly and i'm pretty sure world war ii that there was a when the Germans were just coming across France and France just wasn't used to the rate that the tanks and planes were trying. Plus the Germans were like on methamphetamines going through the night and stuff. They were just progressing faster than anyone guessed. And, uh, and eventually they promoted up this young, he, he might've been a Colonel, but they put him in charge of the whole army. He, this young guy that said, look, I can, I know how to handle this. All these old generals from the old days, literally riding horses, they just don't understand. I've got a plan. And they're like, all right, after all those generals fail, they put him in charge and he died in a car accident and his plans were lost. What? <laughs> Germany took over. I yeah, didn't know about yeah. that. I knew about everything, all that lead up. I knew about the fact that France was yeah. just, they were my perfect example of just not adapting to modern warfare. You got machine guns now, which were new. And France kept doing old style charges into machine gun fire and just Tens of thousands of soldiers would get mowed down. This is World War One. I. I know part of you. That was World War One. Yeah, you're talking so, about World yeah. War Two. Some of it, but yeah, same yeah. same difference. And they're 
and it took it's like what are you doing don't just charge machine guns stop it <laughs> and to be fair the germans were doing it too yeah. everyone was doing it no one was addressing yeah so just, when you all are like despicable casualties if you think about this as being unrealistic like why would they charge dragon? no it's it's completely supported by real war examples of real war even relatively recent that's only 100 years ago or 110 yeah so yeah, people do war people do it just takes a few naive stubborn people in charge of thousands of people in your army to give them some bad orders and in all a bunch of people who are trying to be loyal and do what they're told do it and in there it gets everyone killed yeah did you remember the movie kingdom of heaven Vaguely, Orlando yeah. Bloom. It had a bunch of, I remember that it had a bunch of uh, Game of Thrones stars. It did. It had quite a few. It had. It featured, you know, like uh, near the, after the Crusades, and it featured uh, uh, one really one of the important characters was a knight who was sworn to the king, and they all marched into the desert to confront Saladin. And he's like, one of the guys is like, "Why are you doing that? You're going into the desert where they're like, it's like their home field advantage. It's stupid." And he's like, "Yeah, it's stupid, but I." I follow the king. Like you don't disobey your king. Like period. And then, like you know, like next like, half an hour later, this you, he finds his head. You know, he's like, oh, well, that guy's dead now. And, like he followed his king yeah. into absolute foolish death. But that's what they do. Yeah, it's hard to wrap our modern heads around that level of loyalty. <laughs> and sometimes, like maybe some of you can do it, but I, I have a hard time with that. But it's real. It's very real. So it's real, and it's no. There's no. I have no trouble thinking of it in terms of Westeros. Which you have, I have more trouble thinking of it in terms of stupid humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Speaking of not stupid humans, our good friend TKOK Podcast Network, that's Tommy Pappas, sends a super chat, says, love y'all. Well, we love you too, buddy. Yeah, thanks for the love. And let's keep at it here. Let's talk our next moment here in the preparation for the battle on the march. Here's a quote. The two kings did not linger long at Golden Grove. A host of such size must remain on the march lest they eat the surrounding countryside bare. The Allies set out at once, marching north by northeast through tall grasses and golden fields of wheat. That is another reason why large armies are rarer, because of the amount of food they require all in one place, where you know distribution and logistics become a big issue. Once again, rent... Also, they got to poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's easy to overlook that, but I'm telling you, it's a real thing. It's got to be dealt with. 50,000 people. Well, this is a lot of poop. It's more people than that, too, right, Sean? This is 55,000 soldiers. How many, soldiers, like, yeah, other people? Be a certain accompanying, you know, yeah. armors and cooks and everything else. Yeah. Like, D Drogo's Kalasar is 100,000 people. That's another good example. 40,000 of them are warriors, is what we're told. So. Yeah. For, and that's, and that's like a really a high percentage. culture yeah. they wouldn't have as much of support I, you know i guess all the family and the kids are coming that's probably not happening with this westerosi army right but. some some small some families come but not too many you know like there's camp followers and people who don't have a place to live and you know, children that are born on the march and yeah cooks and and grooms and and squires the squires might be counted as part of the army that's that's a gray area but anyway, yeah, Renly's huge host is, is one of our best examples, again, because we actually see this and we see how they have to keep moving because of the same reason. You can't just take 100,000 people around and, and stay in one place. Like, if you've ever been to, like, a music festival, <laughs> you can, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great example. Like, how could you possibly, like, that, they, all the food that gets consumed 
like the concessions and once again and the how full the porta potties get sean to your point like it's disgusting just think about how long it would take to fill up fifty thousand water bottles <laughs> just think about the logistics of that and they're gonna use more than one water bottle a day of water when it's right? that like, hot yeah you gotta keep doing it day after day it's a huge thing that you get so overlooked what it takes to move around an army like that here is the next quote which refers to Aegon hearing about what's going on and his own counter move advised of their coming in his camp beside the god's eye Aegon gathered his own strength and advanced to meet these new foes he commanded only a fifth as many men as the two kings and much of his strength was made up of men sworn to the river lords whose loyalty to house targaryen was of recent vintage and untested with the smaller host however Aegon was able to move much more quickly than his foes. At the town of Stony Sept, both his queens joined him with their dragons. Rhaenys from Storm's End and Visenya from Cracklaw Point, where she had accepted many fervent pledges of fealty from the local lords. Together, the three Targaryens watched from the sky as Aegon's army crossed the headwaters of Blackwater Rush and raced south. We discussed Visenya at Cracklaw Point in our last episode, or in our last regular episode, and of course we discussed Rainies at Storm's End in our patrons and supporters episode of the Battle of Last Storm. Aegon clearly wanted to move fast, and he knew he needed all three dragons. This is... Uh, some contact clearly happened. He sent letters, probably by Raven, to his sisters... Maybe by horse messenger, since there might not have been inside castles that could be reached at the time. But one way or another, the messages were sent. He probably all already knew about King Torin. He probably wanted to defeat the host of West and Reach before King Torin, and maybe wanted to avoid it, the potential of it becoming an alliance of three kings. Because if it does become multiple foes allied against him, then they might kind of find themselves just naturally going to the strategy that you discussed, Sean, which is attacking multiple targets, going to different places and starting more of a traditional campaign where you attack each other's lands and, and bring castles back over from one side to another. This was, of course, not a very traditional campaign to this point, And that is a big part of why Westeros did so poorly against the Targaryens, because their strategies were bad. <laughs> they were very bad, very bad, very bad. Bad, bad, bad. And Aegon seemed to have known that they would use bad strategies, which made his strategies even more dominating. He had superior military power and superior strategy. So really, uh, yeah, like I said, it's not the, the outcomes of these battles or the actual battles themselves that makes this stuff interesting. <laughs> it's the before and after. <laughs> Let's talk about how they set up before the battle. I call this playing the field. Here's the first quote. The two armies came together amongst a wide open plains south of the Blackwater, near to where the gold road would one day run. Two kings rejoiced when their scouts returned to them and reported Targaryen numbers and dispositions. They had five men for every one of Aegon's, it seemed, and the disparity in lords and knights was even greater. And the land was wide and open, all grass and wheat, as far as the eye could see. Ideal for heavy horse. That's what you were saying earlier, Sean, how they were like, man, it's all coming up. Two kings. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got our map up. Shout out to Michael Clarfeld for this great map that we always use. Shea's got this area kind of shaded in gold. This is roughly the area we're talking about. We don't know exactly where the battle was fought, like I said, but it's 
generally in this area. As you can see, not that far from Stony Sept. You can see that up the nor up up just north of where the Gold Road is. On the, the Gold Road is on the map, but as the quote reminds us, the Gold Road did not exist at this point. And there is not that far. We're not that far from. Uh, King's Landing. We're not that far from a lot of other notable spots. You can see Golden Grove there to the southwest where the two kings first met. And you can see the God's Eye. So not super far from Harrenhal. And this is, uh, like I said, if more time had, had come or more time had elapsed, it, it may have been that the Stark army could have moved south and, and merged with the army of the West and Reach, which might have actually given Aegon some trouble, especially if they were coming from multiple directions or things like that. Yeah. Wouldn't have marched so cleanly into a trap if it had gone that way. But effectively, they did march into a trap. That's another thing I wonder about, too. We talk about Aegon's different sorts of superiority that he had. He would have had superior intelligence. He, mm. The dragons flying around in the sky could see those armies forming up. That's true. Weeks in advance and, and know the general direction that they were coming from. And, they, you know, I, I bet he coordinated. It wasn't a coincidence, I don't think, that this battle happened at this field. I he, think that he knew that would be where, he think he, one, they would think they had an advantage and he knew they didn't. They would. <laughs> it's like, like, actually, they're wrong. That's a great point, Sean. Yeah, he knew he knew what type of ground they'd be looking for. And he was all all happy to let them have it. So I think you're right yeah. that he may he have knows, kind like, of knows like the general it. direction are coming from, where the armies are forming up, what roads they would take, and the the, the direction they're coming. All right, what in the middle is ideal on that route? Where should we? Yeah, yeah I, I like that a lot. And I, yeah. I wouldn't even be surprised if they lured the scouts to that spot purposefully. Or maybe you know? the maybe his he conferred with the Lord of Stony Sept or some other local lords there, and the, who knew the region were like, oh this is where you're going to want to let them go. Like you're trying yeah. to trap them in a big open field that they think is going to help them. Here's the spot. We'll show you, yeah. you know, and it goes back to my thought of him, like bringing Matt Bakers back to King's landing or Dragonstone or whatever. Like those same map makers would have so much insights for him and they would gain so much more insights by getting to fly in a dragon just one time. Like <laughs> I swear, Sean, the first time you said map maker, you said map baker is what I heard. Hot pies bread, yeah. designing maps out of bread. <laughs> Ooh. I would eat that. Would oh, half the map's been eaten. We don't know. Oh, <laughs> Damn it, don't make maps out of bread. That's foolish. <laughs> yeah, Nina wonders if there's any if there were any residual effects on the area afterwards, like the the way that in Dorne we we hear that some of the burnings were so severe that sands turned glass in some spots. I don't know if it would be quite that bad here, but you might have some semi-permanent or at least long-lasting something that like remained for a century uh, afterwards. Very possible, like like f minor level fallout. You know, the heat could have been such so intense that I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what the effects of dragon fire are long term? But I could see it being uh, more than just a, a generation or so. Worth noting that the dragons in the, in the field of fire might not have had to get so close and burn so hot. They just set the grass all yeah, around them on fire. That's true. That, you know, that's true. It's not the actual dragon flame burning them; it's the burning field yeah. but some of them did sure you get a little both yeah, yeah some of them got the actual scorching now you, you wonder too if like he said they found this spot they were like oh look they have less men was this partly bait was it like we put our guys in a spot we knew they would love to fight us they would be drawn to this area but we also know that it's going to be like a hot box that we can <laughs> contain them and maybe they yeah. kept their dragons a little back remember we, we alluded earlier to the fact that maybe they thought they were only going to face one dragon 
So maybe if maybe they even concealed even all of them. And so they were like, we saw the army, but we didn't see the dragons. Maybe now maybe now's our chance. The dragons aren't here. Maybe only maybe there's one here. Yeah. We don't see it. Maybe they were things to increase their overconfidence. Like Aegon's like, yeah, let's let them feel confident. Let's let them feel overconfident. Let's, let's boost their overconfidence just to make sure they keep blundering headlong into this trap we've set for them. Now, don't give them any reason to rethink things. Give them reasons to confirm what they already believe because that wasn't you know according to what we're getting you know from the source material that wasn't part of the reports the scouts bring back right, right. like there, oh no mention of the dragons. five to one yeah and even we have even more horses and cavalry no mention of no dragons. mention i know that's peculiar isn't it like maybe that's just a, a given but like you would still like well which dragon is it which of the is it three is it one yeah that you would think that would matter but no that's not mentioned so that's peculiar and maybe speaks to a little bit of cunning on Aegon's part, a little bit of trappiness, which they may not have wanted to emphasize afterwards because they wanted to show just, yeah, we took them on head on and beat them. And that was it. There was no, we, they don't like, we don't want to point out the tricks because tricks, you can't yeah. rule through trickery. You could, strength is something you can rely on to hold a realm. You can't keep tricking people into holding the throne. And here's where I suspect there's some other history. Some books were involved. Aegon is... I don't know that he was bookish, but he wasn't like a jock that didn't like reading, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better term for Westeros. I feel like he was pretty well educated. And between him and his sisters, it's probably a lot of education, probably a lot of reading, probably Valyrian freehold war treatises and manuals like what thousands of years of dragon lords had written down about how to use a dragon in battle, how to use a dragon against a, a standing army, how to use a dragon against cavalry, how to use a dragon when there's fields of wheat <laughs> around like this is Aegon may not have invented this tactic he may not have just improvised this I strongly suspect this has been written about in past texts and Aegon may have gotten the idea from that maybe he came up with it on his own maybe Visenya came up with the idea but I suspect this isn't was wasn't new it was new to Westeros but we got that literally thousands of years of Valyrian conquests that we don't know much of anything about. And there's probably plenty of strategy written about best use of dragons in war and best uses of keeping men all... Like, the the Mongols had this. The Mongols had these very, not complex, but experienced, from, from positions of experience, from long years of war, of knowing how people retreat, knowing how... The patterns, like it's like fluid dynamics, like the way people run, the way they'll run away. And, and the Mongols would understand how to guide that. They would chase them a certain way to lead them to a, re, a, a style of retreat they could capitalize on. Like fear is something you can understand and predict in large groups. You might not understand how a particular individual react to fear, but when it's 40, 50, 80,000 people, you know, crowd dynamics, mob dynamics, how a riot might play out. And there's thousands of years of Valyrian experience with this sort of thing that I think Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys probably had to draw on if they so chose. And I suspect that's in play here. There were only, you know, 50 years of flight existing in World War II and we came up with firebombing, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. We didn't have a long time to come up with that and we did, so. Imagine if we had had that long, you know, there would have been, it would have been maybe more precise or I don't know, might have been pretty similar, but the idea wasn't new or wouldn't have been new. So yeah, so either way, it's easy to think of kind of, it's a natural enough idea that you can imagine him coming up with it on his own, but you can also imagine it being something that had been written about in a variety of ways over the preceding eons. Anyway, 
Here is our next quote. Aegon Targaryen would not command the high ground, as Ori's Baratheon had at the last storm. The ground was firm, not muddy. Nor would they be troubled by rain. The day was cloudless, though windy. There had been no rain for more than a fortnight. Pretty perfect. And the exact opposite of the last storm. In, in other words, the rain can be a big disadvantage for the dragons and the dryness can be a big advantage. So, yes, indeed. That's something for us to keep an eye out for in A Song of Ice and Fire, by the way. Just as there's a potential for a muddy battle in the Stormlands again, you know, with the, with the Golden Company and maybe other things. There's a potential for large-scale battle like this in the Reach or in the West. Something like the Loot Train battle, vaguely like it, could happen uh, from the TV show. The Reach in the West versus an army with dragons, you know, might... The dragons won't be as... Danny's dragons won't be as devastating as these, but Danny's army will be larger, presumably. It could have Dothraki and Unsullied, so there is that. So it won't be the exact same thing. It won't be history repeating itself exactly, but there will be some elements that we could probably draw... Uh, comparisons to that will be pretty pretty strong and uh, we'll just have to wait and see either way it teaches us to think about terrain and weather when we're thinking about dragons and, and the way that they can be helped or hurt even more so than the men on the ground and the horses here's our next quote taking us into the preparations for the beginning of the battle king Mern had brought half again as many men to the battle as king lorne and so demanded the honor of commanding the center. His son and heir Edmund was given the vanguard. King Lorne and his knights would form the right, Lord Oakheart the left. With no natural barriers to anchor the Targaryen line, the two kings meant to sweep around Aegon on both flanks, then take him in the rear with their iron fist. A great wedge of armored knights and high lords smashed through Aegon's center. Oh, that's a little... That's a little uh, suggestive... Can you see why fist I, him in the rear? Can you see why I did? I, I, sometimes you can tell which quotes I'm gonna give to Sean because I don't think I can possibly because I don't have a dirty mind. Yeah, yes, I would not have made it through that. I would never have made it through that quote. I was grinning, re listening to Sean read it as he talked about taking him in the rear with, and the iron, and especially because Sean said with their iron fist. This is wedge. Yeah, just wedge it right in there, right in his rear. Gosh. Uh, oh boy. Real uh, everything everywhere all at once moment yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the center and the vanguard both for house gardener that's that's really like all the honor and all the doom <laughs> like you just put your son in air right in the vanguard charge right down Balerion's gullet <laughs> Real. didn't work out so well i suspect i suspect edmund was the first to go of, of these because he was in the vanguard like that makes sense <laughs> you know so, and I suspect that the high towers might have had control of one of those if they were there, because they would have been a higher rank, mm, you know, yeah. but, but that's not what happened. So later on, as I was alluding to, they would probably learn one day it might have dawned on them, maybe the day after, maybe during that this was the worst possible strategy they could have used. Put everyone together and charge. That's the worst idea to them. It's the best idea because it's the thing that defines chivalry. Like the you get you get together, you charge and you see who's stronger. <laughs> but in this case, it was horrible, horrible thinking, you know, nope, not not good at all. And. But these guys have just, that's, this is how they've done war for countless generations. They don't know anything else. Yeah. Encirclement strategy is very straightforward, very common, very normal. Aegon probably saw it coming. He's like, yeah, they're going to try to stick their fist in my rear. <laughs> so <laughs> let's see them do that when I'm way up in the air. Like, how are they going <laughs> to? So 
If there hadn't been dragons, or even if there had been one small dragon, and Aegon's army was three times as big, it might have worked. Yeah, it might have still worked. You know? Yeah. Aegon's ally. Here's an interesting perspective to consider here. Aegon's allies. We got like Lord Mooton and Lord Darklin and these other guys who are in his army. They probably just shaking their heads like, oh, these reach and Westermen. Oh, they're just we because they had learned their lesson, you know, a few weeks before. So now they're in the know. They're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, we've only got five times fewer men than you, but they probably felt confident too. Like, they'd seen Balerion in action and they hadn't seen all three dragons in action. It's like, wow. All three, we're going to see a sight. This is going to be a spectacle that they are going to tell their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And they would be confident that they'd live to have great-grandchildren because they would feel confident they were going to win <laughs> this day. Because they saw this army making the mistakes that they made <laughs> when they faced Aegon and how badly it went for them. And they're like, well, at least we survived to see this and to be on the right side of this. And uh, yeah. Think about some other uh, factors for Aegon and, and everyone involved, how, how well this would have gone. These these troops in his army now, it's both sort of a test of their loyalty and their bravery. Hey, I want you 5,000 to face these 50,000. Right? Yeah, Aegon's good point. Tell, are you going to do this? right? And and then also, it's a chance for them to gain glory. Mm. They are all going to come away as the winners of this battle. We were outnumbered. We beat the West and the like, Reach. Like yeah. all of them. Yeah, so you're right. They got <laughs> it gives a lot of glory to his army. It tests their loyalty to him. It gets them a chance to show off the power of the dragons. It was such a win. And ever, for Aegon, at least, other than maybe his, you know, his psyche or his moral dilemma of slaughtering all these people in, in war. But other than that, it's a win in almost every way. Yeah, like those, like a lot of those folks, a lot of the veterans of the field of fire, even if you're on the losing side and survived, but even more so if you're on the winning side in the short term, you probably never paid for your own drinks you know if you were at a bar you know you're like let me tell you the day and everybody's like oh this guy was at the field of fire well, you, well, you, shut I, up shut up everybody shut up i guess you talking about like like Aegon psyche makes me wonder i guess it i also wonder how up close and personal these lords would have been with those horrors like can oh, yeah. they like when they lay in bed trying to sleep do they smell burning flesh or were Oof. they kind of yeah. uh, removed from it a little bit uh, you know i feel like they I might the screams of the yeah like that's a pretty brutal and, like yeah. like war in general is awful but i feel like that would be a particularly memorable sight because of all of the senses that it would be really uh, the smells would be awful smell, too yeah, you're right the sights yeah. would be awful the sounds would be awful the smell you're right just it, terrible it's like if you're you saw it i don't like yeah you're telling your grandkids but maybe you're like you tell your grandkids and then you retire to bed to cry yeah <laughs> i don't yeah. know we can yeah, some people might not want to tell the story yeah they're yeah. like no i will not tell that story yeah i, was, I don't care about a free drink i just want to get past that memory i don't want to think camp. about it yeah you're right yeah we can't we shouldn't over glorify because you're right there would be the other end where people are just like no i'd never want to i want to think about that as little as possible because i think about it all the time when i'm sleeping and that's enough that's more than enough and yeah to bring back visuals it was we got some visuals of this from that loot train battle episode the aftermath was pretty nasty like jamie looking around Tyrion looking around like especially Tyrion wandering the battlefield afterwards like because he felt started to feel responsible for his like what like i'm partly responsible for this which by the way we have a quote later of that Tyrion feeling responsible for a lot of carnage. So it kind of comes back around. So we might be, we might be getting something like that in the books, Tyrion or maybe Danny or someone like looking on this and be like, wow, this isn't really what I had in mind. This is not what I wanted. Ugh, you know, but there could also be 
in House of the Dragon. We might see some carnage and aftermath that gives us other looks besides that one. So we might have multiple view. I can't wait to see all the carnage and burned <laughs> bodies. And, I, I have a thought that I was going to work in later on, but I'll, it's it's pretty relevant now. Is it? It could have been worse. It, it's something mm. that I think that if Aegon, if if, if this is Magor, he wouldn't have burned a strife through the vanguard. Yeah. He would have just burned a circle around the army and all 40, 50,000 of them would have just been engulfed and flamed and died. Of, all the oxygen would have burned up and it, it, he could have just murdered everyone. Yeah, if he wanted yeah, to. that's true. Right? He just did enough to like, the battle's over now, right? Yeah, like, Aegon was more enough, precise. Right? Like, yeah, he, he, was, yeah. he was trying to not kill all the troops. He was trying to kill the leadership and leave the troops alone as much as possible. So yeah, here, here is what Aegon actually did. Here's his, his battle uh, preparations quote. Aegon Targaryen drew his own men up in a rough crescent, bristling with spears and pikes, with archers and crossbowmen just behind, and light cavalry on either flank. He gave command of his host to John Mooton, Lord of Maidenpool, one of the first foes to come over to his cause. The king himself intended to do his fighting from the sky, beside his queens. Aegon had noted the absence of rain as well. The grass and wheat that surrounded the armies was tall and ripe for harvest and very dry. The plan as well ripens. Yes, the army of the two kings was walking right into a fire trap, basically. That's what we can kind of gather from this. Even if you didn't already know it was coming, I think that would be pretty clear. Nina wonders if maybe something we alluded to before, if that we started bringing up in terms of the scouts not talking about the dragons or just mentioning the 11,000 men is maybe, yeah, maybe there were the dragons were kept hidden. Or at least a little bit off, a little bit off site, just to maybe keep them under wraps a bit. Maybe so the gardeners and Lannisters didn't know exactly what they were going to face. Maybe to again to boost that false confidence. Aegon's like, yeah, we're gonna. They've got this false confidence. Let's let's increase that even more. And the best way to that is not not, not let them see the dragons because the dragons will will scare them. If they see them, they'll be like, oh my god, what have what have we done? But if we keep that concealed till the last minute, then the plan will work optimally which it did so there is yeah i mean on one hand you can read this like man things just worked out so well for Aegon. like they just walked right into his trap they it was really dumb of them but on the other hand i think there's plenty of circumstantial evidence or the suggestion of Aegon doing things to in, to make them do this to like increase this increase the odds of them falling into this trap to to encourage them to make this mistake it wasn't just a, a full-on blundering exactly the right way it was some of this was coached i think or encouraged or if not, or coerced or whatever pick your synonym one or the other let's take a quick break roughly halfway through the episode here when we come back we'll get to the actual action then the aftermath then all the fun quotes and references that come during a song of ice and fire and Duncan egg referring to the field of fire to show how the legend lingers to show the lesson that Aegon taught and how it, it held this episode is brought to you by hellofresh go to hellofresh.com 50 westeros and use the code 50 westeros for 50 percent off plus free shipping even though the fall can feel jam-packed. There's lots of holidays, end-of-the-year stuff, things you're trying to get done that maybe you put off. HelloFresh gives you an option that 
lets you move quicker. You know, I, we've pitched before the fun of being in the kitchen with your loved one or loved ones and spending that time together, preparing a meal together. But let's be honest, you don't always have that kind of time. So it's nice to have an option to do something a little faster. So HelloFresh's quick and easy options, including their 15-minute meals, that's less time than it takes to get delivery, less time than it takes to run out for fast food, or about the same maybe and way healthier and way tastier so everything's pre-portioned you're already going to have it in your fridge it's uh, it's a no-brainer hello fresh market has add-ons as well you can enjoy desserts like apple cider cake that sounds awesome with caramel sauce uh, barbecue pulled pork nachos damn i need to take a break and eat some of that right now or mini pumpkin cheesecake Lots of different options there. Personally, I enjoyed the pepita crushed salmon. We had that a couple of weeks back. That was super good. It had these really excellent uh, sides. There were these crispy um, bread pieces and this awesome salad with full of feta and these great tomatoes. Just everything was really good. It was crispy. I love a good salad, so that was nice. I love salmon too, so <laughs> it was pretty perfect all around. So once again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Westeros and use the code 50Westeros for 50% off. It is America's number one meal kit. So head over there today, use that discount code, get healthier, and enjoy that delivery and that speed. Yeah. 50% off is no joke either. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Like yeah. Yeah, that really is a lot. So I'm, I'm glad they have the options of you can do the slower meals, like longer preparation and take your time. Or the fast ones. That's one of the things I brought up when we started repitching HelloFresh was the the uh, changes they've made over the years to to scale and to give you more options. And I really appreciate that, that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach anymore. You get to scale it to you rather than you scaling to them, which that's a big leap forward, I think. So, yeah. Happy to see that. Happy to pitch them. Happy to have them as a sponsor. We also have a bunch of individual sponsors, all of our patrons. And one thing that we do for them is Give them nicknames, give them history or, uh, you know, Westeros, Martin World inspired names. You could pick your own name, too. If you're a patron, you don't have a name. Let us know. We'll make you a name. And uh, I just wanted to give a shout out. We used to do this on a podcast more regularly, but we would shout out some of the names of some of our patrons. So one of our very first, maybe first three or four we ever had was Archmaester John the Just. Also, Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. I like incorporating some other uh <laughs> fandoms into the names <laughs> uh lord commander george the golden is on the beer guard in my in my honor you weren't we biased at all members. when you chose that name <laughs> yeah, he's also one of the earliest ones i was trying to do some newer yeah, some older ones spread early. the love we've around. met we've met george in person at, at, at con yeah Thrones. yeah he's he put some freaking army on him he could definitely be my real world beer guard he's a big dude <laughs> nice. uh, mr alley who was lost and found in scrolls nice Sir Billy Roddy, Knight of the North and Breaker of Horses, and Red Priestess Ellie. I hope I say this right. Ellie Alika. Ellie Alika. Yeah, it's in. The, it's actually Ellie in the Aleka. spreadsheet. Right on. So Sean picked a few that he just liked. We he he's decided he wants to just highlight some random patron names here and there, and I think it's cool. Yeah, some of these names haven't been said in a while. Occasionally, some of them are said during scripted episodes, which still contain the 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 full list of patrons based on our different tiers and which gets shouted out. That's cool. Thanks for that, Sean. Also, Herb Thompson asks, real life history, there's a ton of battles where the vastly outnumbered armies won. Alexander versus the Achaemenids, Battle of Agincourt. Yeah, there are a lot of examples of that. Usually it's because of some advantage that is 
not sighted. Like here, of course, dragons are the advantage that is very, mm-hmm. it's a very clear advantage in this case. Alexander, uh, his was superior strategy. He charged right at Darius. Darius ran away. <laughs> but it wasn't just, it wasn't as simple as charging right at him. It was, he he moved his army, he moved his cavalry that he led along the front lines towards one side, towards his own right, if I remember correctly. And Darius sent a screen to follow him, to to kind of match him. And it was, but it wasn't a horse screen. It was kind of like, it was a bunch of skirmishers and javelin throwers. And then Alexander, if you can watch my hands, he just kind of cut back and charged back. They, they were following him this way. Then he just kind of pivoted back in front of them and, and charged right through that gap. And right at Dar- and Darius ran away and his army ran away with him. Your king runs away, the army runs with it. Yeah. The other advantage was that Alexander's armies were not conscripts and the Persians were like, we're basically slave soldiers. And they were like, we're, we don't want to be here. We're not here out of loyalty. We're here because we'll be killed if we're not. Whereas Alexander's men were like, we're following this guy because he's amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, they kind of had to, too, but it wasn't it wasn't slavery. So Battle of Agincourt, good also, example. That's also a technology thing. Longbow's strategy was the French did not adapt to these longbows being shot at them and they just kept charging right into it and there was mud and all this other stuff, yeah. <laughs> I also should say that I maybe overstated it. It's not like never does the 5,000 no. army beat the 50,000 army. But it's so rare that we take note when it happens. It is the weird, rare thing. There might be a bunch of examples of it, but there are probably literally a thousand times many more examples of when it went yeah. the other way. These battles do, you're right. These battles are, are historically significant in part because the smaller force beat the larger force. And they're analyzed because of that. Like the Battle of Cannae or Carai uh, of, in Rome when Hannibal encircled a larger force with a smaller force. That's like, whoa. That's incredible. But it's, it's an amazing generalship that, that accomplished that, you know, that, stuff like that. Another example from Lalatov reminds me of the Mongols versus gigantic armies with expeditionary forces. Yes, yeah, Subatai was sent with 30,000 Mongols and he to, to scout the West and scout Europe and go through all that area. And yeah, he built... And instead he took over Europe. Yeah, he essentially <laughs> yeah, he conquered like half of Europe with an expeditionary force. The Mongols were just vastly superior uh, in, in on the battlefield and with logistics and these other things. Yeah, so... Very good examples. Very good examples. If they had had dragons, it would have would have been even more one sided, even yeah. <laughs> with their lack of men. So here is the actual quotes from the field of fire itself. Let's have it. The Targaryens waited until the two kings sounded their trumpets and started forward beneath a sea of banners. King Mern himself led the charge against the center on his golden stallion his son Gawain beside him with his banner, a great green hand upon a field of white. Roaring and screaming, urged on by horns and drums, the gardeners and Lannisters charged through a storm of arrows down unto their foes, sweeping aside the Targaryen spearmen, shattering their ranks. But by then, Aegon and his sisters were in the air. Aegon flew above the ranks of his foes upon Balerion, through a storm of spears and stones and arrows, swooping down repeatedly to bathe his foes in flame. They were screaming as they charged, and then it turned into a different sort of screaming. <sighs> I doubt, And you can see the things we were talking about with the planning here. They charged, like, screaming and excited, and then the dragons took the air. They, it says they waited for the charge to begin, which is like, yeah, they were waiting for the closing the jaws of the trap. Make sure they're in charge. If they're fully charging before you light the flames behind them, otherwise, because the, once the charge is going, 
It's not going to stop until it hits something. Like it's not just going to slow down. We're like, actually, never mind. Let's let's ease down. <laughs> like, no, the dude in the front's not stopping. The dude behind him can't stop. No one can stop except the, the, the very end of the chart. Like the guys at the back, and if they stop, that doesn't even matter. <laughs> it's it's lost any sorts of coordination once it's in full charge. It's it's kind of like a snowball or an avalanche. It's not going to stop till it collides with something. I doubt the stones and spears even got close. It says he flew through a storm of spears and stones and arrows like the spears like i don't think those even got remotely close the stones really didn't the arrows maybe maybe that's the only thing that could have even potentially gotten close like he can keep his distance right the flames like he's not like hundreds of feet away i don't think but the flames have a bit of range to them and he's up above you know like how, how like throwing a spear up you gotta be really strong you gotta be like gregor clegane olympic champion javelin thrower to do something like that real life longbows let's get real for a second can penetrate plate mail at about 200 meters but it isn't um full penetration that's just like they can stick in the the plate but not go all the way through so it wouldn't hurt it would just like be annoying it would slow you down a little bit if you had a bunch of those arrows sticking out of you so if we were, it might even hurt a little bit, but it's not going to like pierce your heart. Right, and and often you might have some sort of cloth or leather underneath. You're going to have layers. Condition. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. You're not wearing plate mail against bare skin. That's for sure. I am. <laughs> oh, Shea is. Okay, yeah. Shea is. <laughs> I did a Dragon Con with my. Yeah, with, you are too. You're right. How was that? I was concerned feeder. for Aziz, and he's just like, "It's fine. It's fine. I don't care." I was like, "It's going to be hot." It was Stop only on hurt. my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> It was a little hot, but not that hot. <laughs> <laughs> it was, okay. So there's a misunderstanding about longbows. We And I'm glad uh, um, Herb Thompson brought up Agincourt because there's a little bit of misunderstanding about Agincourt and longbows. Yes, longbows won the day at Agincourt, but there's a, mis there's a belief that these longbows were just killing the French knights by piercing their armor. That's not really what happened. The arrows were killing their horses and sticking in them a lot and slowing them down. So they had to get off their horses because their horses were getting shot down. And then they had to, which put them in the mud because it was muddy, which made them slog through the mud in their heavy army, which was getting worse and worse as they got filled with arrows, which some of them did do some damage. Some of them would find the gaps in the armor and wouldn't hit the plate, would hit like the legs or in the foot or wherever those spaces are. And they're also effective against lower quality plate mail. High quality, like the rich guy's armors, wouldn't be penetrated. But the lower quality plate mail, that would. You can pierce that with a longbow. So it's, it's a lot more nuanced than these descriptions are. So again, bring that back to here. Valerian's armor's not getting pierced by longbows, y'all. <laughs> and Aegon the Conqueror, best believe he had that high quality steel armor. Visenya and, and Rhaenys too. No doubt they had the best armor you could have. And I don't think they had Valerian steel armor, but they did have the best steel you could make. So that's why there was only one slight wounding of one of them during this whole battle, which was an arrow to the shoulder, which was almost certainly an extremely lucky shot. Because, you know, they were aiming for them, you know, like, yeah, shoot down the dragon. No, they're they're trying to shoot the rider. Like, how are you going to kill that thing with an arrow? Like, that just it would defy all logic and intuition that you could kill that with an arrow. <laughs> like, Valerian, like, even a hundred arrows. Like, no, that's, it's silly. Like, it's like killing an elephant with... With needles, you know, <laughs> like how many needles yeah. would it take to kill an I, I don't know that you could do an yeah, it might not be there might not be enough needles. I don't know. So this is a big deal. This is this is how hard it is to to hurt a dragon rider, <laughs> not to mention the wings flapping those giant wings. We saw that. I had never conceived of that before. We saw it on House of the Dragon when Caraxes, wings were kind of this like 
naturally protecting Damon from arrows just by flapping. They're just large, and it's a lot mm-hmm. of space they're taking up when they're flapping. And Balerion's wings are all the larger. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah. So, really, when you put yourself in and add all these details up, it just, just gets worse <laughs> for the Reach in the West. Like, man, yeah, these dragons, just so overwhelming. Apart from the weather, this was much different than prior engagements for Aegon too. Harrenhal was at night. Right, that's a big factor there. He had torched some ships on a few occasions, but even he hadn't faced anything like this. He had fought and he'd fought ships before, you know, even well before this war, but nothing like this. But again, we can assume history came into play. Again, he would have read about engagements like this, and it's not exactly rocket science. There's certainly ways to maximally use each dive bomb, you know, like getting maximum results, crowd control, all that stuff. And this cr- this burning of the field strategy that we're about to see unfold, that was probably had been done before. Maybe, Nina points out the Roinar, 300 dragons deployed against them and Prince, Prince Garen and, and all that. There probably would have been strategy there. Aegon may have read about that. It wasn't just 300 dragons just randomly doing, just swooping down and there must have been some organization to that, you know, wings, perhaps like like fighter planes or something like that. Groups of five, groups of ten, red leader to red squadron. You know, they so don't you, have the. So this is like a choreographed dance of dragons. Yes, real dances. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and Aegon, of course, it's just common sense to if you kill the leaders of an army, then the, the army might fall apart or, or lose its cohesion or start retreating. Yeah, so he was aiming to cut the head off the snake, so to speak, even though Balerion's more of the snake here and is more burning than cutting, but still, the metaphor still works. And Nina points out, yeah, it's, it's just regular military logic. Killing the commanders of the other side is intuitive, right? That makes sense. It's been a, been a thing forever since pre-modern warfare. I mean, I'm talking modern in this sense, and as well as regular modern, our modern. It happens less in our modern warfare. We, it's like a new thing. Rank is kind of subdued and camouflaged on yeah. modern uniforms because that w- once you start to have like ranged weapons and snipers and, and planes or whatever, they can see you know a big banner saying "Here is the leader." Usually in the past, that would have meant you know rally to me, look here for commands. But now it means the bad guys are going to drop artillery there, which is exactly what happened here. Is going to get you. You're exactly yeah. right, Sean. That's the perfect analogy because that's what happened. You got these very visible and large and loud white flags with green hands on them. <laughs> very prominently displayed at the middle of the vanguard and the middle of the center of these two of the four divisions of the army. Remember, vanguard, center, left, and right, right? The center and the vanguard were led by gardeners, and they got the, and the order of the green hand is in their midst as well, which have the same sigil. It's a white flag <laughs> with green hand. For one time, the order of the green hand's like, maybe we shouldn't look like the gardeners so much because that's exactly <laughs> what's getting targeted. So Aegon probably has a pretty easy time of like, yeah, right there, those guys. <laughs> like, okay, Balerion whispers in his ear, get those ones with the green hands. Just just, just all the green hands, target those banners, leave the rest alone. Like, it's like a coloring book. Set those ones on fire. Don't go over the line. <laughs> you know, color inside the lines of that, you know. Bathe it in flame. They just, they marked it for him. They made his job easy. Like, again, this is why I pointed said at the beginning, this is like the worst strategy they could have used for him. They, they put themselves in a fire trap and they marked who to kill. <laughs> like, like loudly and, and uh, yeah, 
and plainly. So it says he swooped down repeatedly, but we're saying he swooped down repeatedly at the green hand banners. Like he wasn't just randomly here and there. Oh, I'll do one over here. Let's let's hit these guys. They haven't been hit yet. No, I think it was very precise. I think it was very organized and he had a he had a plan. And he wasn't like he had very little incentive to target the levies. He wants to target the leaders. And like, why is he going after the peasants? Those are his What's the point? Well, why would he do that? Those are the people he wants to lead yeah, in the end, right? Exactly. He wants those people to go back home and tend their horses and their farms and have kids and pay taxes and be ready to defend against the ironborn or all these yeah. other things. He doesn't want them dead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it makes so much sense the way this plays out. He had plenty of incentive to target the gardeners and very little incentive to target anyone else. There would have been chaos in those front lines. At first, it would have been like, yeah, we're charging. Look at how small this target is. We got them. We we smashed the Targaryen Spearmen. Then, uh-oh, whoops, the dragons. and and Or just one dragon. As it says, Meraxes and, and Vagar apparently didn't torch the armies at all. They only did the fire trick here that we're about to have a quote. So picture, okay, so let's imagine the center and the, the vanguard has charged. The center is charged behind them probably. The right and the left are are still holding back a little bit, or maybe they charge afterwards. I don't know that all 55,000 men charged, but if so, there would still be some towards the back that would see what would be happening as the front part of the charge makes contact. They're probably cheering, just like those front guys were, were screaming in victory or in excitement or exaltation until things went bad. That first burst of flame would have really changed their outlook. They were like, whoa, that was bigger than I thought it would be, but meaning both the flame and the dragon... And then it's black. The flame is black. It's unnatural. It's like not you're like, okay, I've never seen anything like that creature before. And that what's coming out of its mouth is unlike any flame I've ever seen before. And it's hotter than anything I've ever felt before. And oh God, what have we done? <laughs> right? And like you said, Sean, maybe they had hope that he can't just keep doing that. Like he'll run out of flames, but nope. As it kept coming, as it kept coming, they were like, uh-oh. And then it gets worse. As grim as that was, they didn't know how badly they had it until the queens played their part. Quote, Rhaenys and Visenya set fires upwind of the enemy and behind them. The dry grasses and stands of wheat went up at once. The wind fanned the flames and blew the smoke into the faces of the advancing ranks of the two kings. The scent of fire sent their mounts into panic and as the smoke thickened, horse and rider alike were blinded. Their ranks began to break as walls of fire rose on every side of them. Lord Mouton's men, safely upwind of the conflagration, waited with their bows and spears and made short work of the burned and burning men who came staggering from the inferno. Which really shows how engineered and planned all this was before. They had men waiting to kill the ones emerging from the flames. They had preset a group of dudes to wait for that. <laughs> and these were the same men that were received the initial charge, a lot of them were, because Lord Mouton was one of the, as he says, he was one of the first to bend the knee and he was given command of the ground forces. So this was very engineered. They were like, okay, they're going to charge at you. You're going to take the initial brunt. It's going to be difficult, but then we're going to emerge. Balerion's going to start raking their main lines while Meraxes and uh, Vagar do the encirclement with flames, the Mutin's men would have known where their exit would have been. Like, here's where you're going to exit the conflagration. We're going to have a kind of an area which will be 
defended by bows. So you'll be able to move through this while anyone coming after you will be able to pick off. And the dragons will be supporting that effort. All the men probably knew this. They may have been coached on it and they probably would have been just like, this is exciting. <laughs> like they may not have wanted to be there, but they were probably pretty happy with the way it was played out. They're probably like, yeah, we're going to win. We're going we're gonna to beat these guys and then be able to experience victory and all that. So I, I really wonder, it's pretty clear what happened with the vanguard in the center. They would have been the brunt of it. I'm wondering about the, the other two elements of the army and whether they all charged or whether they held back a little and how this affected the encirclement. Oh, ultimately, it doesn't make a huge difference, but it is still a point of detail and curiosity that I have. It's sort of like when you're at a stoplight with, you know, six or eight cars in front of you, you can see the light turn green. But you still can't go yet. The car in front of you hasn't gone. Yeah. It takes a minute for everyone to get yeah, moving. So analogy. those front couple cars charge. Then a dragon burns them up. And the last couple cars don't charge. Yeah. <laughs> the green and red really works there, too. Because you've got green right? for yeah. Gardner and Go and the Reach. And then, yeah. oh, stop. <laughs> stop, red flames. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's a, That works really well. That's that's a really good one. Yeah, you can't charge until the people, only the person right in front of you is charged. Yeah, so, so it would take a while to get going, which would which is why they had to let it get going, which is why right. they had to receive the charge. more than the first couple cars to be coming. Yeah, yeah. so you want to you maximize the And in my example, of six or eight cars, they would have had 40 cars, right? Yeah. Not this big. I don't know quite how to, if every car represents 100 soldiers or whatever. Yeah, know. yeah. And Nino says, yeah, let's consider, like, some of these soldiers that are on the winning side, you know, they, they still might have nightmares, though, even though they're on the winning side, they might have nightmares about all the screaming and trauma. They might not have taken a single wound and it still might, like, affect them. They might still, like, like, there's plenty of veterans, real life veterans who didn't take a wound, but are traumatized by war, like their friend died. Maybe they didn't even see a friend die. It was still traumatizing because there's still human beings on the other side of that war that probably don't want to be there either, that didn't really have any choice in being there. Uh, or maybe they thought they were fighting for a good cause because they'd been misled, which kind of maybe is a lot of these gardeners. To them, it seems like a good cause. They're defending their lands. This is a foreign conqueror to them. This is some guy that just picked a fight for no good reason as far as they're concerned. And yeah, they're standing up for their kings that have been there for 8,000 years. That seems like a pretty, in, in, in world, that seems like you're the good guys. We're, stand, we're the defenders of our territory, you know? They don't know about Aegon's dream, if if that's even relevant at this point, if, if Aegon even cared about that at this point, which I suspect he did, but he might have done all these things anyway. But they certainly don't know about it, regardless of what's in his head. Uh, so that's not going to be any balm for their burns afterwards if they survived like oh he had a good reason oh gee thanks you know <laughs> that'll happen in my lifetime i'm sure so nina asked the question how much did it bother them how much did it bother the winners not just the the soldiers but like Aegon himself and the sisters were they bothered by this or were they just so above the common folk so superior thinking about themselves that they didn't you know like a they're able to push that aside like they don't have sympathy for lesser humans or something like that or are they just that royal with their thinking that uh they can have that level of contempt for lesser life you know i don't know this is something that we don't know very well about Aegon. we don't know about rainies i i kind of have my doubts about visenya we know a little more about her i kind of doubt she was too concerned with this kind of thing but maybe you know it's possible maybe you know she there's the public persona isn't always what's uh what's behind 
the eyes, right? Like what's going on in your mind might be different than what you present the world. That's pretty common. I think about um, a couple, I mean, I could have a million thoughts on this, but mm-hmm. a couple that kind of mind quickly are um, the movie Unforgiven. There's this, this young kid who's going to get the bad guys, you know, and he finally catches one, kills him. And it's the first person you ever killed. And he's kind of sick to his stomach over it. Like I, even though he, in his ostensibly at least that was a bad guy, he still is not comfortable with having killed someone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was, it was a western. It kind of challenged a lot of. It was almost like a Martin style western. Mm. Was sort of sometimes they would have a hard time getting on a horse. It wouldn't hold still. Like everyone yeah. did just jump on a horse and ride off. They kind of the the reality of some of the stuff was presented there, including what it's like to kill someone. And think about Robert McNamara in that documentary Fog of War when he's kind of reflecting on. That's going to bring it up here anyway, because he he came up. He was just this young Air Force. You know, I, I think he was a lieutenant or something, but he was just tasked with trying to figure out how to most efficiently use the planes and bombs. And to him, it was like this math problem. Oh, and I figured it out. We just use incendiaries and it'll burn all the oxygen in the air and kill everyone. Yay. And the Air Force <laughs> yeah, said, okay, okay, let's do it. And then they just killed everyone in Dresden and killed half the population of Tokyo and just kept doing it every night, week after week. In Germany and Japan, and and now and so this movie Fog of War is interviewing him, and, and he did a lot of other. He put seatbelts in in cars, like he was responsible for that. He did a lot of th- great things through history, but he there was this moment in this interview in Fog of War where he's just reflecting, like, yeah, I came up with firebombing, huh? You know, I, I might not have been the pilot that dropped the bomb or the general that gave the order, but maybe someone else would have come up with any. But it's hard for him not to like think about the maybe literally a million people that died to that you yeah. know and so mm-hmm. yeah you wonder like uh, does Agon feel was like did he was like well i had to do it it's like that's how he justifies it in his mind you know yeah i don't know he killed those four thousand to save the other four thousand yeah. killed those four thousand to bring safety to the realm stability to the realm like different ways he might justify it maybe just literally not think about maybe it maybe he or- has justified maybe the justifications help him but he still has doubts like well maybe you know, what if it was just a dream what if i was wrong you know like I don't know. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that had a lot of doubts, but he, that doesn't mean he had none, you know? Yeah. And maybe he did have doubts. Yeah. Maybe that's why he was kept so close to the chest because he didn't want people to see his, his, you know, his, his lack, his lack of confidence when he was so important to him to project supreme confidence. He didn't want to yeah. show any cracks in and, that. And maybe Aegon who needs to be in this leadership role and has accepted the losses on the short term for the big scale, or maybe he has some, a dream that he's trying to fulfill some, you know, destiny. But what about that Bowman? What about that Bowman from the Crownlands who's just killing people who are screaming in flames? Like, how do they feel a week later, a year later? You know? Yeah. Oh, tells well, that guy was burning. I put him out of his misery. Like he, he was. Yeah. yeah like, maybe that's I don't know, I might... rationalize it or just maybe it's a good way even to rationalize or justify. Yeah. It. I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I would tell myself if I was in that spot. Another interesting thing about this too is like, yeah, it looks, maybe it looks a little less chivalrous. Maybe it's not as quite as honorable. Maybe that's why the, the, the trap nature of it all was downplayed by the sources. Nina points out a great parallel. Oris beat King Argilac in, in one-on-one combat. That looks really honorable. Whether And we put out in our episode on Battle Last Arm a lot of suggestions that this maybe didn't go quite so smoothly. Maybe it was a little like after the battle, they dressed it up a little to make it seem a little more even, a little more noble on Oris's side. 
Argilac had been thrown from his horse and fighting all day. Like, he probably was, had been wounded already. Like, was he really, he wasn't at full strength. He's a lot older. Like, so it was, really wasn't that even. But the sources kind of make it seem a little more even and make it seem more noble, which is like, yeah, they would do that. They would do that. It's the winners that they're writing about. So the same thing here. Like, downplaying the level of subterfuge and cunning that was used. But also, you. but there's no portraying this as Aegon beat Myrne one-on-one in a fair fight. There, that can't you can't sell that the period like there's no mm. version of that that works they wouldn't even try that so does anyone like look at that little side eye like yeah this was kind of unchivalrous this wasn't this wasn't a fair fight yes like we have to bend the knee to this guy because he has his big ass dragon what else can we do but i don't know it might it, it doesn't in some ways it doesn't fit into the, the codes of chivalry which are important in westeros you know i know they i know that these things can be convenient like chivalry is often just forgotten for expedience and this could be easily be one of those times but i think it's a fair thing to bring up and like some people might have it might have rankled the way that this was done because it was flames and dragons and not two enemies meeting on the field of battle to see who's strong there's a natural supernatural elements which will later be complained about by the faith will say ah oh, the incest the drag these monstrous dragons this stuff is unnatural it's not of the seven we shouldn't guess that those attitudes only came after they were beaten by the dragons. I think some of that probably started before. I, I, I like those points, but a couple, I don't know, counterpoints. That might have made it all the more important for Aegon to do this. He's mm. like, I don't care if you beat me one-on-one. That's not what's happening here. Okay. I'm coming with my dragons. You better kneel. Mm. Right? Yeah. That's part of what he's yeah, trying yeah, to prove. Yeah. This point here is like, sure, Orius and Argilac, they can do whatever. But I would have gone over there with my dragons if, if Orius hadn't won. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm going to win, you know. And uh, furthermore, it makes it all the more important for Aegon to do what he did is be chivalrous otherwise. Mm. He does win. Okay, you bent the knee. Now go back to your castle and serve me. I'm not going to continue to, like, I, I, you know, maybe in this battle, I w- it was unfair, but I'm going to be fair afterwards. Okay, yeah, I like that. That's a good point. Like he, It makes all the reason to be more chivalrous outside of the battlefield if there's any doubt on right. it. That's a great point. And we will see in a couple of cases, Aegon does fight people hand to hand at least a couple of times. I don't think it's happened yet, but it will happen. So that might be part of why to, to counteract an image that was gained here at the field of fires. Like, okay, I'm going to balance this out with some victories with Blackfire. Take out a few people in one-on-one duels just to prove that, Hey, I am dangerous without my, it's not all the dragon. Yes. The dragon is important, but I I'm, I'm a good warrior too. It's not all the dragon. It's 99%. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> not all the dragon. So Nina, returning to Nina's point about feeling conflicted and using this as a parallel to nuclear weapons, which is something that's come up uh, several times in the fandom over the years. Nina's done it before. I think we've done it before. That it's a, a, a reasonable parallel. It's back in current thinking, I suppose, because of you know movies like Oppenheim. Well, that one in particular. But it's come up before. And George grew up during the era where, during the nuclear panic era, um, when nukes were new and nobody knew, like, whether people would be able to hold back. Like, oh, should humanity really have those? It's kind of a bad thing to be out there. Yeah, you're not wrong. Like, if one of those falls in the hands of the wrong person, yeah, like someone who's unstable. Like, imagine, like, look what happens with Magor gets a dragon. <laughs> like he goes around and just yeah. destroys things. I mean, heck, even these sane Targaryens level that kind of destruction on Dorne. So it, it's uh, Nina suggests maybe George wanted some readers to at least think about those parallels or at least 
have the potential to notice them if they come up. Maybe not. Maybe not as direct, but maybe the ability to unleash total destruction is maybe itself an unethical thing. Just using it, having the ability to use it as a deterrent is one thing, but actually using it as something else. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing to ponder in, in the modern world, but also to apply it to their world and, and, and with try to use their sense of ethics and how that might have applied. All right. So as we said, the battle itself didn't, there's not much else to say about the actual battle. The men were surrounded by flames. A lot of them were burned. A lot of them were killed. But maybe not as many as we might think. Here is the full aftermath quote. The field of fire, the battle was named afterward. More than 4,000 men died in the flames. Another thousand perished by sword and spear and arrow. Tens of thousands suffered burns, some so bad that they would remain scarred for life. King Mern the Ninth was amongst the dead, together with his sons, grandsons, brothers, cousins, and other kin. One nephew survived for three days. When he died of his burns, House Gardner died with him. King Lauren of the Rock lived, riding through a wall of flame and smoke to safety when he saw the battle lost. The Targaryens lost fewer than a hundred men. Queen Visenya took an arrow in one shoulder, but soon recovered. As the dragons gorged themselves on the dead, Aegon commanded that the swords of the slain be gathered up and sent downriver. 4,000 men dead, which is a huge number of people, but not a big percentage of the army. So that's 7,000 dead to dragon flame and then, uh, or 7% dead to dragon flame, and then another thousand killed by swords and arrows and spears. So it's only about 8%, 9% of, of the whole forces that were on the on the field there so low casualties isn't unusual in ancient battles that's actually fairly normal but this isn't even necessarily a low amount of casualties in that side but it is a low amount a low percentage to have wiped out all the gardeners given that all the gardeners were wiped out it's a kind of a low percentage so which really emphasizes what we were saying about them being targeted all those banners and everything. It's also a huge, huge ratio of losses on one side to the other. Yes, yes, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very true. Now, forty to one or something. When they were when when the side that lost forty to one had outnumbered the other side five to one. That's an incredibly lopsided uh, yeah number. Now, Anita points out this is probably a little narrative economy on here. This it's kind of hard to imagine there were no Gardner cousins just elsewhere. Like all of them were on the battlefield. That's a little hard to swallow. Uh, and no nephew or wife or daughter back home. Well, the wives like, will account for separately, but yes, still, even that, yeah, like both of the grandsons were old enough to be on the battle, on the field of battle, but no grandsons that weren't, you know, <laughs> it's like, mm. yeah, so it's, uh, it is kind of convenient, but that's, that's fine. You know, it's not, it's not unrealistic, but it's definitely like, well, maybe a little bit of author thumb on the scale there. It's maybe a little unrealistic, yeah. but still it's a little, it's a, we can, well, we can write in some more here. We can believe that there were other cousins out there that were that the Tyrells went and did something to they're like well if we want to hold on to power we better get rid of these other gardeners and it's just not written in the history books that way because it looks bad it's the same thing like oh so all the gardeners were hunted down and killed afterwards that looks bad that doesn't look that doesn't that's not the kind of realm Aegon's trying to you know be perceived as running he, he doesn't want that he doesn't want to be the guy who's executing people in front he wants people to bow to him because he's strong not to bow to him because 
or else, you know? It's tyrannical. Yes. Yeah. That's the Magor that comes later. Magor does those things later. He didn't learn that subtlety. He didn't learn those differences. I can imagine there being some gardeners out there that are like, you know, actually, my last name is Flower. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> Let's just avoid this whole conversation. Yeah, I'm a bastard. Uh, no, really. Okay. Uh, my mom and dad were not married. I escaped the <laughs> castle with some silver, and I've got enough to buy a horse, and that's good enough for me. Yeah. Now, Nina points out how this has happened in other places, too. Like, there's... He, George has in the past been a little bit dismissive about the potential for other Starks being around. He's like, yeah, there's probably some Stark cousins in the North somewhere, but that's all, you know, that's it. You know, it, it would be hard for it to be otherwise considering, you know, this, the, the bloodlines don't just vanish, you know, like this, their Stark cousins married in these other houses long ago. That bloodline has to still exist somehow, you know, even if it's been kind of forgotten because it's been hundreds of years. But yeah, there's um like Tully's and Aaron. She says the same thing kind of happens. It's just, yeah, there, there would probably be some other examples out there. But on the other hand, if we're pointing it that way, the gardeners really did put themselves in the thick of it. They were the, the gardeners were all piled into the two frontal positions and charged right at Balerion or charged right at the army, which and advertise so, themselves and advertise themselves. <laughs> so, so there is, it's not that's part of why it's at least somewhat believable. And I can also believe they even brought seven year olds with them too. I can believe that's that true. Yeah, you want them to see it. Even confident enough that they would have brought them just to be part of the adventure. Yeah. Just Ned, how old was Bran when he Ned brought him to see the head be chopped off? You know? Yeah, seven. Yeah, seven years old. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. And you're you're not wrong. Eight and nine year olds, ten year olds are occasionally in battle. Yeah, like Aegon and Aemon Blackfire died at the Redgrass Field. They were Damon Squires. They were like what eleven, twelve, maybe thirteen. Thirteen's yeah. Getting into the range of less crazy, but still, that is really young to be in battle. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and so they stuck together in battle, which is normal for houses like they, they do. They, like you said, you have your banner, so you know where your people are, which work, which backfires in a spot like this when there's a, you know targeting and weaponry that can pick that out, which is also what happened. So, so it was a yet yet another example of why this was a horrible strategic error by the army of the two kings. So many of these things that were very normal for them were, were huge disadvantages. Another one that was wiped out, Lord Armand Peak. The Peaks weren't wiped out entirely, but Lord Armand Peak and his all of his sons were killed. So it was like a cousin that inherited here. So there was none of this writing off the cousins <laughs> for the Peaks, but they were for the gardeners. <laughs> but again, no one would probably hunt down and kill the extra Peaks, except maybe other Peaks that wanted to make sure that they got mm -hmm. it all for themselves. The entire Order of the Green Hand was wiped out. That, that makes more sense to me because they're a martial order. They would all be on the battlefield. There might be like some scribes and retired guys, but like those dudes would have just died out. It's not like your sons don't join the order automatically. It's not like a, it's not a hereditary thing. Not a, there wouldn't guarantee. have been enough left over to maintain the order yeah. anymore, even if some random people survived. And technically, the Manderleys still say it exists, and it's them. They still claim more <laughs> membership in there. They had already gone north well before this battle. Lucky for them. <laughs> They're like, ooh, another reason why we're glad we're up in the north. We would have been on the field of fire right there with them. And, and our little greenish mermaid might look a little too much like a green hand from a distance. <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> like, yep. Oof, oof. Yeah, we dodged a, I would say a bullet, but a burst of flame fire bullet yeah. fire blast as for the rest so the, the survivors we're talking about when i say the rest all those permanent burn scars tens of thousands it says had burn scars that's a way to keep the memory alive for a generation that's a way to prove if you're one of those dudes at the bar claiming to have been there that's one way to kind of back your your tail up that you're like i look up the burns to prove i was there like, these don't do these look like normal burns to you no those are dragon fire burns i took a direct hit 
from Valerian on my arm. That's why my arm doesn't look right, yo. 30,000 in total surrendered. Um, so with 4,000 killed by flame and 1,000 killed by conventional weapons, that means as many as 20,000 got away. Because 55,000 on the battlefield and 30,000 surrendered. So that's like, that's a lot who got away. And the ones who didn't get away were added to Aegon's army, which immediately marched north to confront Torin, which we'll be discussing next time. So yeah, look at that. It's very common for real-life sources to exaggerate, to under-report their losses. This might be one of those times, 100 deaths for the Targaryens is all that's reported, and an arrow in the shoulder for Visenya. But I, I, it's possible. It might actually be that small. I can, I can kind of believe it. I feel like it was probably more than that, because that, that big old Iron Fist did smash into their front lines. And then the dragon started coming down. So that, just that initial charge, I feel like that alone could have taken out more than 100. But, but maybe not. Maybe not. You know. Talk about a bunch of swords for the Iron Throne. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a lot of swords. A whole bunch melted gardener swords. Some nice swords. Some gardener swords and all that. Now, remember how I was talking about how I'm not sure the right and left had time to fully charge because of the size of the center and the vanguard and how long it would take them to get going and in full strength, like using your stoplight analogy. And again, King Lauren got away. So that maybe kind of does imply that he saw the battle was lost and rode away. He was the commander of the right or the left. I forget. It doesn't matter. He got away perhaps because his, his division never fully engaged, which would make sense because two divisions engaged with 11,000 men. That's, Half of a 55,000-man army. That's 22,000 men already. You can see why <laughs> Aegon's like, okay, we got to do this now before our 11,000 are completely overwhelmed. And by that time, King Lauren has not yet charged. And yeah, that could explain it. That could also explain why there's no mention at all of what happened to the 4th Division. They might have been, they might have gotten away mostly intact, which that could account for a lot of the 20,000 men who got away. But, but that's about right. If you think about the math, divide the 55,000 in fourths. That's about, what, 14, almost 15, or almost 16,000 per division. So that's, that would be, not 64, my bad. So 13, yeah, yeah. 13,000. 13. So close, like 13 and a half, almost exactly 13 and a half thousand per, per fourth. So if one and a, one and a half of those fourths got away, that's roughly 20,000. So the half of, like half, roughly two thirds each of the left and the right got away, something like that. Anyway, that's not an important thing to figure out, but, you know, we like to get into the weeds with those numbers and those casualties and, and army sizes. Uh, so the rest, yeah, that's just a gruesome feast, too. You hear about the dragons gorging themselves on the burned dead. You know, we know the dragons like their meat well cooked, well burned. There'd be plenty of that. But that's just gruesome to think about and would intimidate the survivors even more. Like just sitting there watching the dragons just eat the dead, like as if they weren't intimidated enough. It's like, if they didn't see those creatures as unnatural enough to be like animals don't eat cooked meat like that's not normal even that is unnatural like we're the only animals that eat cooked meat <laughs> i never really thought about that before dragons only i think it's even mentioned in the books only humans and dragons eat cooked meat you know <laughs> there's some exceptions animals that we've domesticated dogs would eat oh i mean they don't prepare it that way i'm sorry they don't look to eat right yes, yeah you're of course yeah. right that they will eat it it's not part of their natural diet yeah, for they'll sure. happily yeah like our cats will absolutely you put cooked meat in front of them yeah <laughs> they'll, they'll go for it but <laughs> the crows would show up eventually too because the dragons can't possibly eat all that themselves maybe the wolves and the wild dogs and it gets kind of gross but as to the lions the worms as to, yeah <laughs> the worms yes absolutely the worms and the worms the, with the y and the o would be feasting <laughs> 
the big and the small. So as we said, the the Lannisters got away. So as the wolves and crows and dragons were feasting, well, let's have a quote about what happened. Lauren Lannister was captured the next day. The king of the rock laid his sword and crown at Aegon's feet, bent the knee, and did him homage. And Aegon, true to his promises, lifted his beaten foe back to his feet and confirmed him in his lands and lordship, naming him Lord of Castle Rock and Warden of the West. Lord Lawrence Bannerman followed his example, and so too did many lords of the Reach, those who had survived the Dragonfire. No description of how this happened, but it's pretty easy to imagine. I mean, the dragon would be faster, he'd be able to find them, and they'd be in disarray. But it would be important, like, as we said, you don't want them to get back to Castle Rock. You really do not want them to get inside and hold up. You want to stop them before they arrive. So there probably would have been a, a pretty big sense of urgency. Maybe not as much as I'm imagining. Maybe they don't realize how bad Castle Rock was, but I think they did because there's one of those anecdotes about Aegon having visited certain parts of King's La- uh, of, of of Westeros before the conquest includes him going to Lannisport, which means he would see Castle Rock because it's right there. In fact, it's likely he went inside, given he visited, if he visited the Lannisters, they would probably have him inside. But who knows? Still, he would have seen it. I can imagine it being an organized surrender that he, quote unquote, got away and then assessed the situation. Like, all right, now what? The (laughs) army's defeated. They've got these dragons. They beat the Reach. They beat everywhere else. They might... They might burn me alive as I try to run back to Castle Rock. And then, I, then when I get back, what I, yeah, I think he might have decided I need to just surrender now. And, and he might have sent an envoy. And I think it might sound a little better to both sides, too, if he, if it, if he was captured rather than he surrendered. It's not, for him, that sounds better. They got me. I had no choice. That's a good point. And to the Targaryens, it might sound better, too, that like, we got him. We captured him rather than... It w- might have been an arranged surrender. I'm not sure. I, uh, I can see that. Yeah, the, how it might have played out. The optics are a little better there. Another factor is that it's a pretty good way back. Like they would have, it would have taken a little while to get back to Castle Rock. It's not that close. They had marched a substantial way. I mean, they were in the west. I mean, they were not in the west. They had, to, they were in the Reach. They had to march all the way through the west. Castle Rock's basically at the shore, so plenty of time to be caught. Which, which emphasizes what you're saying. Like, yeah, they might, we may not be able to get away. All the more reason to maybe surrender. Yeah, like you said, he may just torch us if we're, if, he, if he's flying, if his dragon gets here, but his army is two days behind, he might just decide to use his dragon and we don't need any more of that. We don't need any more of that. We're done with that. We're done with being strafed by unnaturally hot black fire. <laughs> That's sweet bad. Once was enough. Uh, Nina points out, as she is wont to do, a example from the Accursed Kings, which is also an example from history in this case, because historical uh, Accursed Kings is historical fiction. The retreating, defeated Philip VI of France following the Battle of Cressy, wandering the countryside with a handful of men, knocking at the door of a manor house with the words, Open to the unhappy king of France. (laughs) Which (laughs) is, uh, I believe, a historical anecdote as well as something that that I think Maurice Druon put into the books. I could be wrong about that. Nina will surely correct me later if I'm wrong. So, Nina, let me know if I'm wrong about that one. I like what you said about the surrender, potentially. Nina offers another potential that maybe not. It doesn't necessarily look better to say you surrendered but uh, or to say you were caught but because it might look cowardly. But it's hard to say. It's, it's, it's difficult to put us on our place. And you already look bad because you lost. So what makes you look a little bit less bad? You know, does it look bad to say you surrendered or is it after you got away? Or does it look better to to say you were captured? Yeah, I'm not actually sure. Nina isn't sure either so yeah it's a it's a fair point to to put in dispute even now they would have beaten castle rock eventually I, i'm sure of it but it would have been a nasty business long and ugly and, and slow and 
Yeah. And like you say, Sean, they got better other things to do. It might not have been worth it. Yeah. Right. They might have been able to capture Castle Rock at the expense of losing the Crownlands or the North or never even starting on Dorne. Like they might have spent the time and having all those dragons, they could probably like contain Castle Rock. They could just like burn flames into entrances and keep food from going in or out. But while they're doing that, Who's monitoring the Iron Islands ships going over to the Crownlands or pirates attacking Dragonstone or whatever else? They need the they need the dragons for other things. Yes. And never mind their armies that they would then have to feed as they siege Castle Rock. And I, I, I think that they could have done it, but they might have said, never mind, we'll come back to this kind of like Dorne. Mm-hmm. We got it. We need the dragons for all these I other agree. missions. Yeah. And it might have dragged out. They might have, you know, even if they theoretically could have. And the reality is they might not have been able to, at least not for a long time, kind of like Dorne. Another good angle Nina points out here is that Aegon had proved himself willing to give territory to, uh, to, to take the top spot away from someone and give it to someone else. He gave the Tullys the Riverlands. He gave Oris Baratheon the Stormlands. At this point, the Tyrells hadn't, been given Highgarden yet, but that was about to happen. So Lauren may have realized that. He may have like, oh, another reason I should surrender is that if I don't, he might give the ca- give Cassie Rock to someone else. <laughs> he might give it to the Reigns yeah. or the uh, the Marbrands or He someone. could have flown his dragon back to Castle Rock, yeah. which would have almost no forces now because they all just left, right? And said, all right, we just defeated your king and your armies, and here we are with three dragons. And just like the Tyrells, whoever's there might have just bent the knee and said, all right, it's yours. You're yeah. Right. And he yeah. would have raised them up to say, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. So to, to make sure he got to keep Casterly Rock, he might have been like, I better surrender because Aegon will. He does tend to lift up reward those. Reward me for surrendering like he has done with everyone else. Yeah. And he will punish me for not surrendering like he does with everyone else. Yeah, he may, so that may have, that may have set in as he's running away from the battlefield in panic. Once he gets away and starts thinking about it, he's like... Yep, better bend the knee. Like he hates to admit it, but he's yeah. the more the more he turns it over in his head. You may have advisors telling him the same thing, or his advisors might be telling him to just fight on or something, or it's not don't give up hope. Or but he's like, Nah, dog, we got <laughs> we got to give up. <laughs> that's the best move at this point. And and he was right. He 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 now bent the knee. The the West bent the knee with him. There is still his liege lord. So they and they and they don't have Castle Rock to retreat to. It's not like. They don't have castles inside mountains. <laughs> they don't have infinite wealth inside that mountain. They can't hold out. And it's dishonorable. Their, their king bent the knee. They're supposed to as well. It's, it's kind of how you're supposed to. You followed your lord when he called you to battle. And when he bends the knee, you do too. So, yeah. There are a couple that could have hidden out. There are some of them that have castles and mountains like the rains. But Tywin was able to destroy again, them. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you hiding out for? Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Like, finally, after years of being sieged, you'll come out and be in charge? Yeah, now? yeah. What? Things no. will have gone back yeah. to before. Like, the dragons will have died out. Yeah, well, good thing we waited out that Targaryen generation, that one <laughs> that one decade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you fools that went along with it. Yeah, you should have hidden under. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, this was extremely different from what happened to the Allies. Uh, every single male gardener wiped out. We don't hear of any Lannister deaths. Not not one, because th- th- according to Tyrion, Lord Lauren or King Lauren, Lord Lauren, shortly after hadn't had a son yet. <laughs> there were no sons born to him. They lost soldiers, uh, but not 
any actual Lannisters, which is interesting, which more even more implies that the, the Lannisters never really got into the thick of the fighting because of where they were on the battlefield and they retreated before they were caught in the full trap of fire. Because uh, there's so many Lannisters. There's always a lot of Lannisters, right? <laughs> there's always, I mean, maybe this, the ones that were killed just weren't, weren't relevant, so they didn't get mentioned. Like, a couple of cousins aren't worth historical mention. If, you know, like, someone that's 25 spots away from the succession doesn't bear mention unless he's the only one left or unless all of them were wiped out. So, yeah. So there was no disruption at all in their dynastic line that we hear of, which is obviously very different than the uh, elsewhere. It's kind of similar to what happened in the Vale. The Vale also saw, saw no disruption at all. They're like, before it got to their armies dying, only their ships had died. They're like, yep, we bend the knee. Our young king becomes a young lord. Everyone else stays exactly where they were in the line of succession. The same people are in charge. Their title just isn't quite as fancy. And you get a new title, though. Both the Vale and the West got new titles. They got this Warden of the East and West. Those were new dynamics. So you go from King to Warden. You still get to be a High Lord. So, they, you know, there's still these new titles that get created. They still have some fanciness to them. This would not be the case in The Reach, however. So we went long on this, so I think we'll, we'll call it here. We'll, we'll get back to High Garden and the examples of the Field of Fire, the lessons. We'll come to that next time because a lot of these things are related to what we'll talk about next time, which is the other kingdoms that handle this a bit differently. There isn't a single more large battle left in the conquest. There's lots of small ones. There's lots of burnings. There's lots of castles and guerrilla warfare, but... Things are moving into a different phase now. So we had a good point of flexibility here. We could have either, if we, if we had gotten through this other stuff a little faster, we could have pushed our way through all of this. But we've got more than five pages left here, like six pages left of, of our notes here. And if it took us two hours and 10 minutes to get through 14 pages, this probably another hour of this. So we won't, we're not going to push a three hour episode and we're not going to do part of this. We'll, we'll save it off to, to bite off all at once. So let's do a few other things before we end the episode. One thing to look forward to here is all these great quotes. We'll start next time with, we'll, we'll go through the field of fires examples in Westeros in current times. That includes quotes by more quotes by Tyrion, uh, a quote by Lana Tyrell, and a quote from Daenerys and Barristan. Lots of good stuff. And, of course, uh, the Sworn Sword. It comes up in the Sworn Sword a few times. We also get a look at what it might look like, a microcosm, because of the burning that happened during the Sworn Sword. So, before any of these shakeups could begin in earnest, before Highgarden was settled, before Hightower bent the knee before the Iron Islands and all that. The North, Dorne, a lot of places still unsubdued, even though we weren't, aren't going to see another large battle. There's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of coverage for us to get through, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Lesser problems like the Three Sisters, who were still aiming for independence, who at this point were still holding on to that. No one had confronted them directly yet, but that will come. We actually won't have an episode next week. We'll probably put up a rerun, but we'll be back where we left off on the 22nd of October. And let's discuss the trivia question. I'll say why we're off. Okay, yeah, week. go ahead. Every year I forget to plan for Atlanta Prides. We, we celebrate Pride in October, not June, like the rest of the country for the most part. 
Um, so we have the Pride Festival here, and every year we stream on Sunday, so I can't go on Sunday. I only go on Saturday, but I thought ahead, and I asked for it off this year so that I could <laughs> actually experience all of the Pride Festival, just a free festival here. So that, yeah, Atlanta why. Pride goes hard. I mean, yeah. Atlanta's a hub. So Yeah, yeah, there's all <laughs> sorts of musicians and a parade. And anyways, I'm quite excited to uh, experience both days of it this year. Right. That's, that's I think that. I read somewhere, I don't know quite how they measure this, but it was the third biggest Pride celebration. I think New York and San Francisco are one and two, and Atlanta's that, three. That checks nice. out. That makes sense to me personally. It does. And yeah, it's great that we have it in October, because June in Atlanta, be miserable outside. October, the weather's beautiful. So yeah. Anyways, <laughs> if you were wondering why we were off, I thought I'd let you know it was for me. <laughs> yeah, for Ashea. Only because you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> You can't not give the best a weekend off when they ask for it. I mean, hell. That's just unthinkable. It's unthinkable. So, trivia question. The question, this is very funny because we really re-emphasized the answer when Shot said the name (laughs) wrong. Accidentally featured Oakenheart. Oakenheart. People liked it. People then were like, Oakenheart was my guest. Yeah, people, (laughs) Z said he wanted to have the trivia question have the answer in the episode sometimes or going forward or whatever. And yeah, people seem to like that. Cool. All right. Well, I'll keep that going then. I like, that's a good, I think that's a good way to do it. Have the, the answer be in the, cause you know. It just feels a there'll be more. some people who just know it like when we first asked because they all just read it which kind of fits in with I, what shared, we're I, I shared this tidbit because we, we did our uh, trivia game you know um we, we hosted trivia for patrons and um if you wanted to see how that went you could watch on uh, the facebook page um we, we streamed it but anyways um when preparing the trivia questions i had to ask because he he doesn't write the answers to the questions in the documents so the questions are not there. The answers are not there. So I had to ask Aziz, well, what's the answer to this? And there were multiple questions he did not know. He did remember. not. He stumped himself. A good fourth or fifth of them. Yeah, yeah a like, good fourth or fifth of the questions a good Aziz chunk. didn't yeah. know. So. You read me like 20 or 25, and like if it was 20, I got 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every <laughs> time like, Aziz didn't know one, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now I put the answer in the document. So Because there's been times where people, where Shay is like looking to see who got the answer right. And she didn't know because she didn't know the answer because yeah, so like, <laughs> I didn't I put it in there. Got the answer right on that one at all? Sorry, y'all. Yeah. Whoops. Okay, that's my bad. But that's- <laughs> incidentally, if we're if we're ready to announce this, we're going to do trivia again on the yes. 28th, right? Yes. We we should set? say it now. Yeah, we're going to do. Well, I'll I'll make a post and I'll hack people on Discord and whatnot. But if you're listening now, uh, you can plan now ahead. We're going to do it Saturday, October 28th at 3 p.m. This way, hopefully, some of you who are in Europe can make it work. We're, we're just trying a variety of days and times, and we'll look back at our logs over time and figure out what, what was most popular. And uh, if you want us to keep doing things like this, you should show up because it, you know, it's not for sure that we'll keep doing it for longer than six months or, you know. Yeah. yeah. Participation will absolutely keep it going no matter what. All right. So a couple other odds and ends here. Uh, if you are wanting to stay immersed, check out our episode on the Age of Heroes or an episode on Highgarden or perhaps our episode, The Last Storm, which is for patrons and members only. There's three main main ways to get access to all of our bonus episodes. This The Last Storm is simply the most recent of our subscribers only episodes. The three ways to get it are become a patron, become a Spotify subscriber, which there should be a link. If you listen on Spotify, there should be a link in the description of the episode. Or you can send us a one-time donation through PayPal. Uh, you, there's a link on our website 
And if you send us a donation through that, I will send you a link to all of our bonus episodes. So there is a fourth way. Is there? You can have you can have sex with Melisandre. <laughs> okay, there is a fourth way. I don't know how you would prove you did that. Oh, you'll know. Okay. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> we'll we'll take each one of those in a case by case basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we'll keep that in the shadows. Keep that in the shadow, baby. <laughs> Yeah, so that's how you get the last storm episode. That's how you get all our other patrons episodes. It's a long list now. I couldn't possibly read them all off. So you get you get a lot of bang for your buck these days with a membership to History of Westeros. But you needn't do so if you don't want to. We have a large back catalog as well, so plenty of ways to enjoy our show. We're saying that plenty of people sign up and they're like, I'm going to sign up for six months or I'm going to sign up and read five dollars until I've given sixty dollars. You know, they it doesn't have to be forever. That is you a know, way a lot of people do it. Yeah, yeah I do like, that. I, yeah. I, I I can't support all the shows I want to support, so I will support some of them for six months to a year, and then move on to the next one, and then maybe circle back when I can. But yeah, like I can only do a certain amount. I can't afford to be a patron of every single thing I enjoy. Um, you a lot of y'all can't probably either. But I think yeah, it's a pretty good way to do it, just to move it around from time to time, and that way you uh, you hit everyone that you're supporting with at least a little bit of love, a little bit of backing. That's the best way to support other people. But for <laughs> us, it needs to be forever. Or else. I think it's such an option. The field of fire will come to you. <laughs> I think it's a great option to exist in a world that we're not depending on Coca-Cola to give us a spot Thursday nights at eight or whatever. Just people who like us can support yes. us. You don't need to do it through an advertiser. So. You're right. I mean, we take whatever sponsor. Hey, we'll take yeah, advertisers. We'll take- it allows yeah, us to we'll turn down sponsors. Like we would be in a weird spot where yeah. we like, we can't turn sponsors down. We can occasionally. Like, it's hard to, cause we we're not like, we're not rolling in the dough here, but yeah, it does give us a little more flexibility as creative. We're not beholden to just whoever has money, <laughs> which is kind of how a lot of art and creativity has worked throughout most of human existence. It's like, well, if either I take this money or I, it's not getting done. And a lot of conundrums that come between that. Yes. Yes. That's how it works. Cool. So yeah. So we definitely appreciate those of you who, who have taken that step, but there's lots of other ways to support us. Telling your friends is, is one of the best ways there is uh, one of the best, probably the best non-financial way to support. But we appreciate whatever may, way your support comes. We're very lucky to be able to do this and we will not cease being thankful. So thank you as well to the people who support us outside of our listeners. Uh, Nina as well, who's also a listener, but her support as a co-writer is invaluable. You can check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Joey, Jesse, and Bran giving us great help with the uh, intro, outro, our music. Same goes for Michael Klarfeld, his excellent help with the maps. Go to claradox.com or claradox.de. Excuse me, that's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X.de. You can buy the files and then go print the maps yourself. And that includes a lot of maps that you may not have even seen through us because he's done a few. Also, thanks to our Benjineer and... Thanks to my excellent co-hosts and our Facebook mods. Haven't shouted y'all out in a bit, but you deserve that mention. It's a lot of work mod modding groups or forums and things like that. A lot of, a lot of work goes in that y'all might not be aware of unless you've done it before, in which case you're very aware of it and <laughs> probably feel the same way as how I'm describing it right now. <laughs> so until next time, everybody, this was a great episode. I had a lot of fun discussing this huge episode of a song of ice and fire history as we pointed out at the beginning it appears right at the start in Tyrion's second chapter and we'll have more to say about it next time you know what to do in the meantime valar 
Reredus.